there. So I got up before 5 a.m. this morning. I was thinking about the question of ends versus means and our liberals at this particular time and place in American history much more process-oriented than conservatives who perhaps are more ends-oriented. Like, what's more important, the means or the ends? So, for example, the liberal and mainstream media outrage over Republicans denying the legitimacy of the 2020 election, this seems very focused on the process. So from a mainstream and liberal perspective, because the process was followed, because uh, changes to voting laws, the ease with which people could vote, the vast expansion of voting by mail, they all followed the correct processes and all the Republican challenges to the vote, right, failed the American processes. They failed in the courts and they failed in the American political process. So there, there seems to be in the mainstream media and among liberals in particular a great focus on process rather than ends. So from a liberal perspective, because the processes were followed with regard to 2020 voting, then it was legitimate. From a conservative or Trumpian or Republican perspective, there there is a sense that all the institutions are aligned against them, that the system is rigged against them, and that the processes currently in place in America are rigged against them, and therefore there are ends that are more significant than the process. So let me get get myself sorted out here, play a little from a recent October 20 discussion here with Richard Spencer and company. came on his show, and he would tell them, yeah, listen, you can't mention the Jews, you can't mention the ADL. Okay, this is a discussion regarding Alex Jones and whether the dissident right should be trying to appeal to the Alex Jones audience. As Jewish, you can't talk about – and anybody talking about the kind of stuff he talks about should be talking about Israel every day. Well, wait, so wait, wait, wait. Russell Brand has like a, a, a like goy disclaimer when he brings people. I was talking about, about Alex Jones. I was oh, talking oh, about Alex, Alex Jones. Oh, okay, pardon me. Sorry. Well, the pro-white yeah. movement has been making quite unflattering cartoons about Alex Jones since the early 2010s. Yeah, and and that too, of course. And I mean, maybe more the moderate um, dr do, but the, the people that are overtly racial hate him. <laughs> I was also. Yeah, like, I mean, they like, don't trash him that often, though. They don't trash him that often, and when they do, like, no, DRS, I, I think they, they like him. Well, what also, if, what, what you're saying is kind of telling because you're like, it, I, I think there's this issue where the where white nationalists see someone like Alex Jones, and they're kind of like, he doesn't go far enough. Like he's 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 so right about everything. Like there are all these conspiracies, but he just doesn't talk about Jews or. I mean, he does kind of talk about race to a degree no. in the sense of calling people out no, anti-white or something. But again, I think this is actually a really big problem. It's a, it's a problematic way of thinking because it's associating any kind of racialism with just like being conspiratorial and being wacky. Uh, this is Richard Spencer making some good points that essentially he doesn't want anything to do with the Alex Jones audience, that anyone who buys into Alex Jones is ipso facto so broken, so deluded, so low status that he doesn't want anything to do with that audience as opposed to those who want to grow the size of 
the support for their version of distant right politics. And so they're much more interested in bringing in low quality people. So from both a, a Richard Spencer and a, a Greg Johnson and a, and a Leninist perspective, what's most important is that you secure the elites while other people are more focused on numbers. Some people like a Spencer or a Johnson or a Lenin, much more focused on quality and they take it for granted. Anyone into Alex Jones, it's just not, not the right stuff. They just don't have the quality. They're too low status. Okay. So from a realist perspective, from a John Mearsheimer perspective, the primary purpose of a nation state uh, of a country is to survive. So that's very ends oriented rather than process oriented. That if you're primarily focused on survival, then that is a particular ends and your survival is more important to you than the process. Uh, Judaism is Jewish now. Perspective of Judaism, all right, you can violate any Jewish law but three to survive. So the three Jewish laws that you may not violate to survive, including you may not engage in certain gross sexual sins such as homosexuality, adultery, or incest to survive. Uh, you must not uh, bow down to idols publicly. All right, so just certain basic laws that uh, three basic laws that you may not violate to survive. Aside from that, you can violate any Jewish law to save your life. So again, this sounds rather ends oriented. This sounds very nationalist. So it seems like the more nationalist your group is, the more ends oriented it will be. The more liberal your group, the more process oriented it will be. So in Judaism, there's a dispute about the possible existence of an extra-halakhic morality, right? Is there a plane of morality above Jewish law, halakha, halakhic means Jewish law, or is right and wrong simply determined by observance of Jewish law? So if you observe the law, are you therefore doing what's right? Or, in I think Nachmanides' perspective, he was a 13th century rabbi, you can observe Jewish law and be absolutely disgusting, so should your focus be on simply on observance or on using Jewish law to create goodness and peace and decency and, and thriving around you so that there is an extra halakhic morality above and beyond Jewish law? If you just focus on observing the law, you can be disgusting in the words of Nachmanides with the permission of the Torah. So there is something more important than simply observance of the process. And I actually think no, that's, that's, yeah, that's not my beef. That's okay. not my beef with him. My beef, it's much deeper. Taylor doesn't talk about the Jews and I think he does fantastic work. It's not just he doesn't go far enough. He completely takes people that would otherwise be in our, on our side of things, our sphere, who would totally be open to knowing the truth about Jews in Israel. And he completely yeah, see, misses this is what I'm, you're, you're doing exactly what I'm talking about. Garbage. I'm not you're saying he doesn't go far exactly enough, though. He literally misdirects, he misdirects people into garbage, and he distracts Why do you think his audience it? is one that we should be cultivating? I think most of his audience would be open because they're people who obviously don't like the status quo, sense that there's something yeah, wrong. Yeah, but they're, they're also whacked out of their minds if they're not listening to that them. stuff. Some of yes, them, some literally of them are all of them. No, but also, no, Richard, young, Richard young, young men that are 20 Why would you want to years old, they're highly impressionable. They're highly impressionable. Why would you want to appeal to a bunch of losers? Right, that's the essence of uh, Richard Spencer's argument. Okay, what's more important, the process or the ends? And would it be fair to say that in America in 2022, that 
the the mainstream liberal perspective is that the process generally speaking is more important than the ends so is there a left right difference with regard to the relative importance of means and ends and it seems like in 2022 uh, the the mainstream says the process is more important and it's the extremists on both the left and the right who argue that ends are more important so the chant no justice no peace the movement around no justice no peace all right that is not process oriented it is ends oriented unless you give us the ends we want the type of justice we want we will not allow you peace so whether it's on the left black lives matter and tifa or on the right oath keepers proud boys these groups don't seem terribly hamstrung by concerns about process they seem much more focused on particular ends so i'm wondering out loud if liberalism in america in 2022 say, as opposed to leftism, makes process the highest value. So, as I mentioned earlier, from a liberal and mainstream perspective, the 2020 election was valid because it followed all legal processes and all challenges were rejected by the system, including the courts and our political process. Now, on the other hand, Republicans, generally speaking, see a corrupt process to change voting laws by fiat, Right? You had Mark Zuckerberg lavishly funding attempts to make voting easier, in particular for Democratic voters. He particularly funded get-out-the-vote attempts for Democrats rather than Republicans. So Republicans see the 2020 voting process as essentially dominated by liberals who control every major institution in this country with the partial exception of the military and business. And that these changes to our voting laws in 2020 were generally not voted on by state legislatures, and therefore they were not legitimate. That's the Republican argument. Now, on the rare legal fact of voter fraud, I absolutely believe that there's no evidence that there is significant voter fraud in American elections over the past uh, 30 years or so. And I'm referring to a terrific book called The, the Myth of Voter Fraud, which was published in 2010. Now, I reached out to a philosopher friend. He says there is a thing called procedural liberalism, which is a left-wing thing in California where the left controlled the courts, but it's usually thought of differently in the philosophy of right-wing thinker Michael Oakeshott. He makes a distinction between ends-oriented and rules-oriented regimes. So liberal democratic regimes are generally rules-oriented and more authoritarian regimes like China, Russia are more ends-oriented. And same with uh, Max Weber, where it is a matter of procedure versus substantive justice. All right. So substantive justice from a Max Weber perspective is associated with socialism. The common good people nowadays tend to be on the left, but not necessarily so in the past. Roman Catholic thinkers tend to be common good thinkers. So Adrian Vermeule, a Harvard Law professor, he is into... The, the common good philosophy. He's also a Schmittian, a follower of Carl Schmitt. So constitutionalism in the United States generally focused on the idea that we are a rules-based order. It's uh, as opposed to the idea of a common good which should transcend the rules-based order. So you have constitutionalism, rules-based order on one hand, common good thinking on the other hand, which is used to attack constitutionalism and you know, process being the most important thing. So German basic law is much more collectivist, so it assigns legal status to political parties to participate in the formation of the will of the people. 
but that's very substantive to what he did. You don't hear much conversation in America about the will of the people because the people are so fragmented. Now, that might make sense in 1950s America and prior to the 1950s where you had much more of a cohesive people. Though America's never been as cohesive as Britain, which has never been as cohesive as France and Germany and Japan and China. But as America's become steadily less cohesive, more multiracial, more multi cultural, more multi-ethnic, right? You have less and less possibility of a will of the people. So common good thinking is rather hot for administrative discretion. So common good thinkers want to put more and more power in the hands of bureaucrats as opposed to the people. Now, populism Right, it varies in time and place. So populism in America in 2022, that's incredibly process-oriented. No? No, it's not. It's not process-oriented. So in its original forms, populism in America was process-oriented. It was constitutionalist. But there was a difference between the southern populists who were strongly constitutionalist and the northern ones who are less so. So the Schmittians in the United States and at Harvard kind of ridicule naive faith in the constitution of conservatism in favor of much more discretionary power by bureaucrats, which is more of a European model. Trumpism does not seem process-focused. Uh, the thought of Michael Anton does not seem as process-focused as much as ends-focused. Seems like the, the more individualist the society, the more process-oriented it must be. The more fractured the society, the more multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-religious the society the more process-focused it must be to even function. Right? Populism depends upon something called the, the will of the people, Right, that there is a public, that there is one public as opposed to the elites. So populism is a reactionary force against the rule of the elites. And in, in America today, in 2022, it seems much more ends-oriented than process-oriented. Now, Traditionally, in American history, the argument that the American system is fundamentally corrupt, that came from the left. And if the system is corrupt, if the processes that run the country are corrupt, then you have to aim for higher changes than just process. But now the argument that the system is corrupt seems to primarily come from the right. And so there is much less satisfaction, it seems like, on the right with waiting for process rather than trying to achieve common good. So the more strongly you argue there's something rotten in the system, the less likely you are to place process as the highest good. But what, what is the purpose of the United States from a liberal perspective, right? To decrease oppression, to decrease ignorance, to allow for ever more human flourishing by following the processes established by our leading institutions, the courts, the professions, the bureaucracies, the educational system, and, and the media. Does America have a greater purpose than just following process? So let's look to the preamble to the United States Constitution. It states, We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our pros posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution. So usually following legal processes will be the most effective way to provide for the common defense and to promote the general welfare, but not always. And so I think perhaps 
radicals, conservatives and radicals of all types are more at ease with the need for states of exception, where you have to go outside the rules. No constitution is going to provide everything you need to survive every situation that comes along. And so sometimes when you have to move above and beyond the processes, when you have to go above and beyond the law, right, you're entering a state of exception. And when you're in a state of exception, you're, you're saying that there are values that are more important than simply following the process, values such as survival. So is the idea that the United States is here primarily to provide for ourselves and for our pos posterity, is that more of a conservative thing today than, than a liberal thing? right? Is the United States here primarily to defend us, to keep us safe, and to allow us to flourish, rather than simply following processes? So from a traditional or conservative perspective, America is not an idea. America is not an experiment. America is a way of organizing ourselves to protect ourselves and our posterity from a dangerous world. Our safety is more important than following procedures. So the Constitution, from this perspective, is not a death warrant. Let's play a little bit more here from this Richard Spencer discussion. I've seen it. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've talked to people who are all hyped up on this Infowars stuff, and they are people that would otherwise be open to the right ideas, but they're being distracted with all of this. And then he blames the Chinese for He says the Chinese run Hollywood. Get the fuck yeah. out of here. <laughs> like, get the fuck yeah. out of here. Well, again, I would stick by my guns on this. I, 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 I'll give a pass to people who are like 17 or something and they go down rabbit holes or whatever. They, they get a pass. But like most of his audience is not 17. And why we'd want to appeal to them, I think, is the question. Like, you know, if we had their audience, we would have to be like them. We would have to be like Alex Jones. No, I disagree. You know? I think there's, some, there's a lot of people like that, but there's also relatively normal guys. You're thinking of like the worst of his audience. That's all he does. That, you know guys in their 20s and regular guys that listen to that stuff. And, and yeah, it's not just all New World Order boomers. <laughs> but I haven't I, seen that. There was, it's it's not where, just boomers. It's, there's plenty of young people who are into that nonsense. There was a point, too, where I um, looked into, like, uh, you know, around 2017, I was like, you know, because I knew we had a big operation. I'm like, who does this guy employ? Well, there was the whole thing where he interviewed his employees. And what was strange was his employees were, like, some of his biggest fans. So yes. it's like, it, it, it's, it's like, it's an entire environment. It's almost like Jonestown, like within the yes. operation itself, where it's like us against the world. You know, we are the keepers of truth. Everyone else is, you know, ignorant or they're sheeple or whatever words they're currently employing to describe the, the population at large. But I, I thought that was sort of fascinating that like his employees were like true believers, you know, like oh, yeah. down to like, down to like the fucking guy holding the fucking mic. So like, yeah, well, look, yeah. how about this? Even if he's not influencing a single person and every, and you're saying is right, every person in his audience is just undesirable. Still, what he's doing is still despicable to me, even if it's not working or if it Well, I think it's despicable, but not because it's like, oh, you're so close. You just took a wrong turn right before hitting the destination. I, I think the whole thing is like fucking despicable. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not saying he's just so close to took the wrong turn. He, he literally totally misdirects people and he knows better. And he misdirects them back into Democrats are the real... He he does because he's had people on his show and he says you can't talk about dude that came out that someone was on his show. And he, I've he seen multiple clips of things like that happening. My question remains: like, 
why are you assuming that he's going to like be like us or something? Like not everyone has to agree with us. And he knows, he knows the truth and he's misdirecting people into DR3 saying the Chinese, How, this man who thinks that he was. So what the heck is DR3? DR3 is the common Republican refrain. The Democrats are the real racists. Okay, let's uh, examine a little bit the constitutional thinking of Adrian Vermeule, who's a Schmittian Harvard law professor. So looking at his Wikipedia entry. Right, so Adrian Vermeule's concept of common good constitutionalism is based on the principles that government helps direct persons, associations, and society generally toward the common good. And that strong rule in the interest of attaining the common good is entirely legitimate. So this seems to put the ends above the process. So this approach should take as its starting point substantive moral principles that conduce to the common good, principles that officials, including judges, should read into the majestic generalities and ambiguities of the written constitution. So there is essentially a meta-constitutional morality and politics. So these principles should include respect for the authority of rule and of rulers, respect for the hierarchies needed for society to function. So people on the right have much more of an instinctive respect and need for and recognition of hierarchy, while people on the left tend towards uh, a much more egalitarian perspective. So I think people on the, the right, they, they look at nature, they see hierarchy that some animals run faster than others, you know, some dog breeds are more dangerous than others, right? Some in, animals are more intelligent than others, and people are therefore on the right much more comfortable with the whole idea of uh, hierarchy. So common good constitutionalism says we should place a premium on solidarity within and among families, right? So the traditional right-wing perspective is that it's better to organize people and, and families along traditional means, such as the nuclear family, rather than trying to innovate. That uh, processes and means of organizing people that have been time-tested for thousands of years are superior to whatever we develop now. So, uh, for example, gay marriage, that's, that's brand new. Right? We didn't have gay marriage in human history prior to the last 30 years. Let's get a little bit more here from Richard Spencer. Quinon okay. is real. He knows the truth. <clears throat> he knows that Israel is something that should absolutely be talked about, not like a lot. Yeah. He knows that the Jews are running all this. He's not, he cannot be so stupid to know that they don't have massive power, but he's saying it's the Chinese to everyone. Even if it's not working, still what he's doing is trying to misdirect people who, in his mind, you know, are people who are into you know, <clears throat> finding the truth. Yeah, he's also um, a very, very devout, serious Christian, and he, I, he, I know he married and had a child with a Jewish woman. I think she divorced him, and I believe he remarried another Jewish woman who is also now divorcing him. Wow, if uh, Alex Jones is a serious Christian, then Christianity doesn't really uh, mean much, does it? It doesn't seem to have uh, many requirements if uh, Alex Jones counts as a serious Christian. All right, so what is common good constitutionalism, in particular the Adrian Vermeule variety? So refers to the need for solidarity within and among families, social groups, unions, trade associations, professions, respect for the legitimate roles of public bodies and associations, a candid willingness to legislate morality, recognition that all legislation is necessarily founded on morality, and that the promotion of morality is a core and legitimate function of authority. So these principles promote the common good and they make for a just and well-ordered society. All right, and that these principles are more important than processes. So 
according to Adrian Vermeule, common good constitutionalism determines the common good made by legislatures is instrumental. It embodies the background principles of natural law. The legislative intent is not controlling, but the law seeks to put into effect natural law principles, that there are certain laws that are just inherent in nature, and that these intended principles of natural law behind the positive meaning neutral law are controlling. So officials, including judges, will need a candid willingness to legislate morality to create a just and well-ordered society. So common good constitutionalism is not to maximize individual autonomy. So the more individualist the society, the more fractured the society, the more multiracial, multireligious, multiethnic the society, the more the society to function has to put the emphasis on process rather than on common good. Right? So common good constitutionalism is not aimed at maximizing individual autonomy, not aimed at minimizing the abuse of power. Its aim is to ensure that the ruler has all the power necessary to rule well. Authority in rulers can be exercised for the good of the subjects, even if this goes against the subject's own perceptions of what is best for them and perceptions that will change over time and place. As the law teaches, the law habituates, and the law reforms people. So subjects will come to thank the ruler whose legal strictures, which are possibly first experienced as coercive, eventually encourage subjects to form more authentic desires for the individual and the common good, better habits and beliefs that better track and promote communal well-being. So there are a lot of things far more important to Harvard Law Professor Adrian Vermeule than just process. So I love my family, I love my friends, I love my community. There are a lot of things more important to me than process. And the enemy is he who threatens the people I love. So in his great book, Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression, The Nature and Origins of Conservophobia, Ronnie Goldman, a lawyer and a philosopher, and he writes in this work in progress, conservatives intuit cultural oppression. Their sense is there's something unnatural and inauthentic and indeterminate about liberalism. So liberalism presents itself as neutral, as just uh, being empirical and you know valuing facts and science. But conservatives see liberalism as just another partisan agenda. So the conservative conviction about cultural oppression is not always communicated persuasively. It doesn't always make sense. Sometimes it is incoherent and inchoate, but it tracks the historical process by which the modern liberal identity has been shaped. So today's culture wars are a contemporary recapitulation of the struggles by which modernity first emerged out of the pre-modern. So generally speaking, to be on the right means that you're more pre-modern, possibly even medieval in your outlook, than the more liberal who is going to be more modern. So liberalism contains elites who are always trying to inculcate the disciplines and repressions of the modern identity. So the modern identity is where the self is buffered. So what goes on next door if my neighbors are trans or homosexual or you know sinners of any type, that doesn't necessarily affect me because I have a buffered autonomous strategic identity as opposed to the traditional conception of the self which is porous where what's going on next door and what's going on with you and what's going on around me has a profound effect on me that's a more traditional even medieval view so a medieval view is the world is filled with angels and demons and forces of good and evil and that there are sacred places sacred times sacred symbols sacred words 
and that these must be respected. The, the more modern view is that there are not sacred places, sacred people, sacred words. So from a liberal perspective, the greatest problem is ignorance and bigotry. And from a conservative perspective, the greatest problem is disorder and threats of contagion. So liberals always want to educate. So what we have now is a clash between liberal elites trying to inculcate the disciplines and the repressions of the modern liberal buffered identity where you're a strategic autonomous self and the unwashed masses, right? They're trying to resist this extirpation of their traditional disordered folkways, right? This is a role now filled by traditional American values. So conservatives feel oppressed by power-hungry, control-obsessed liberals, while liberals only see right-wing rhetoric by people who haven't fully internalized the modern ideal of the buffered strategic autonomous self. So conservatives are much more viscerally attuned to the idea of a poorer self by what's going on with you is going to affect me. Therefore, I have an interest in, say, a, a common moral code. And so conservatives are more averse to the disciplined, disengaged, you know, buffered agency into which liberals have been much more successfully socialized. So contemporary liberalism represents the apex of the disciplinary, autonomous, strategic buffered impulses that have created modernity. And modernity in large part was created by the rise of reform Christianity, otherwise known as Protestantism. So modern liberalism is a secularized version of Protestantism. All right, modern liberalism is the latest and the most extreme outgrowth of the secularization of religious asceticism and the democratization of courtly sociability. So it used to be yet sacred places, sacred times, sacred people, sacred symbols. But with the rise of Protestantism, you had this vast reduction in sacred times, sacred places, sacred roles, such as the priest, sacred symbols, right? So modern liberalism is the latest expression of this secularization of Protestant asceticism and democratization of courtly sociability. It is the now forgotten pre-enlightenment roots of progressive sensibilities. So liberals celebrate their superior civility without understanding this is a modern and politicized variant of Protestantism. So the disengaged, autonomous, buffered self that liberals aspire to is opposed to the traditional conceptions of the self where we're porous and what's going on around us is going to have you know a profound effect on us and that there are you know demons and that there are sacred spaces and sacred entities and sacred places all around us and we want to align with the sacred as opposed to the demonic which is a more medieval and traditional perspective so liberals have this reflexive aversion to conservatism they see it as much more primitive and pre-modern and medieval, which it is, right? So they see in conservatives a, a rude and crude animality. It's a sinful indiscipline and an affront to the higher refinement of liberal sensibilities of the buffered autonomous strategic self. So...
Didn't he like oh, marry a stripper or something? Wasn't it like a, I don't know, I shouldn't, wasn't it, didn't he remarry like, I don't know, he like left his wife or uh, I, whatever, it doesn't matter, but I'm just I don't like, think that was. Uh, like, I've not heard that by Alex. Let me say something that, that might reinforce a little bit what Richard's trying to say. You know, I, um, because I think maybe Dylan, um, what you're, sorry, sorry, I, I, I re remuted my mic, but anyway, um, I think what Dylan's getting at is that, um, you know, if Alex would just go one step further, we could really red pill all of his audience and this, like, kind of the red pill, the normies thing. A lot of these people, like, they, um, you know, I, I, I've been noticing, I've been posting in the chat lately, like, COVID stuff is getting hot again on the right and on the DR. Um, even, I mean, Joe Biden himself even said the pandemic was over last month. And it's just like no one on the left is really even talking about it anymore. And yeah. um, a lot of the people that were former Alex Jones listeners that used to talk about the globalists and all this stuff um, became like Trump voters. And then they became like um, a lot of those became QAnon believers. And now that that's kind of gone, I mean, like the COVID thing is kind of like the new thing. It, it, it's just like I'm noticing this tendency on the right where they just have to find a losing issue that's righteous. And I mean, like really right. it's not much different than the conservative thing that we all identified and laughed at five, six years ago. But I mean, like, and, and I think it comes down to Christianity. Like, they just have to go and die on that cross. They just have yeah. to go and find something to nobly die for. So from a Carl Schmitt perspective, you can't effectively have democracy unless it is homogeneous. Right? There, there is no alternative but to have rulers and the ruled. And for an effective society, you want the rulers to be identified with the ruled. You don't want... A separate class, ethnicity, religion, ruling people who are different from them. So if all those who live together as legally recognized citizens of a constituted democratic state happen to distinguish between friend and enemy in the same way, so then the equal participation of all citizens in the political process and electoral appointment of officials, this would be a requirement of democratic you know, functioning. If you could identify the outcomes of the political process with the will of the people, and to consider them democratically legitimate, right, then you've got a working system. So it is possible to identify the outcomes of democratic procedures with the will of the people. But this is not inherent in democracy itself and its procedures. So this identification between the outcomes of the democratic process and the will of the people is only possible in a homogeneous society. It's only possible where the rulers and the ruled share a similar identity and they share the same friend-enemy distinction. So the enemy is he who threatens the survival of your people. So if those who live together as legally recognized citizens do not share the friend-enemy distinction, right, do not share a political identity, therefore in this Karl Schmittian sense, the identity of the rulers with the ruled will no longer occur, and the constituted democratic state will no longer be truly democratic, and the rule of the majority would degenerate into an illegitimate form of indirect rule of one social faction over another, even if it follows democratic processes. So sovereign dictatorship is frequently necessary to create the substantive equality that grounds the legitimate operation of a constituted rule-governed democratic politics by making sure that the rulers and the ruled are aligned, that they have the same conceptions of the friend-enemy distinction. It's a righteous cause, but they just have to lose. They just have to lose. And so, like, like Alex Jones' whole thing is, like, there's this mighty, powerful cabal that's controlling everything, and... I mean, like, when you really break it down, it's really, like, demoralizing, and it's like, well, shit, I mean, like, even if this, which I don't think it's true, but I mean, even if it is true, and all the stuff he's saying, like, these, like, the vaccine is a Bill Gates bioweapon, and, like, all these people are going to be infertile, they took it, I mean, like, if this is true, it's like, shit, man, I mean, how are we ever going to win? Right, yeah, you know, no, that's and, true, and, and, like, it's that's, really demoralizing. Yeah, and, and, like, I think that's the esoteric yeah. message 
that like um like like of a lot of the conspiracy lore and i think it's what keeps a lot of the alex jones listeners going back it's because again i mean like, they just want to die on that cross and i i mean like that really gets to the thing that we're doing here is that like until you fix people spiritually um then i mean it's you know just talking about the jews um is not really gonna gonna um get at the real problem well, yes. he kind of misrepresented my argument. I didn't say that he needs to just, he's so close, he needs to go one step further. I actually had written down in my notepad a while ago the problems that I see with Alex Jones, if everybody wants to check that but, but out. That, the, that is the, what you're yeah. saying, though, Dylan, because your, your argument you doesn't make sense unless, you, unless we assume that he has some great audience that we, we want to or something. Like, I see him as a shit magnet. You know, like, I don't, like, that, if you try to capture those people, they are going to turn you into them. And okay. like, forget his audience. He, he yeah. uh, just forget divorce the audience. Lost people. Well, just divorce the audience. Watch. Divorce the audience from it. What he's doing, even if he doesn't have a good audience that we want, is still garbage to me. And it, yeah, yeah. But like, again, why would you want? If you think that like the Jewish question is important and race is important, why would you want someone who thinks that Sandy mm -hmm. Hook was a staged operation? saying that it's insane. It's insane. like you should hope mm. that he disagrees with you <laughs> i see your point i just uh, yeah from i feel like what he's doing uh, that is a good point i just my position has been like what he's doing is deliberately yeah. i mean there, there are a couple of things I, I think look i think you can make that argument i mean there are a couple of like i've heard alex jones say this and this was actually back in like let's say 2004 or something like this and he was talking about david ike and he said the guy is a turd of the punch bowl and so what he does is that He's, he's getting it right on the New World Order and so on. But then at the last minute, he throws in, you know, surprise, surprise, they're actual aliens. Right. And it's like, yeah, and so he's like, now you can't talk about, you know, the New World Order because it's associated with this, with, with something that's truly outlandish and, and something that's just kind of never possibly provable. You know, I mean, there's, you're dealing with shape-shifting aliens. Like, you, you, the second you capture one, it's going to shape-shift into something else. Or whatever, you know. Anyway. Um, Reminds me of aliens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But it kind of like, in some ways, you could make the same argument about him because it's like he he definitely is channeling some kind of rage and confusion and maybe paranoia out there, and he's kind of pushing it into some direction. Now, the question right. is like, where is he pushing it? I mean, I, I think it is interesting. But but look, you could say the same thing for Jared Taylor in the sense that he's trying to capture, has been trying for many decades to capture an audience of conservatives, and he might tell you that he won't come down in political that's nonsense he is a conservative and he's trying to harness that energy towards what towards something or maybe he's trying to cheerlead racial populism or something has but jared taylor ever i'm oh, sorry has jared taylor ever Go pushed ahead. like the whole like my tax cuts my free markets or no, like, like, yes, uh, kind of yeah, yeah. Okay. he has a strict focus on race realism i think he's right. trying yeah. to but, that, but give me a break give me a break it's not it, it, he's republican i mean like just give me a break like he can say that and he will never like tell you not to vote Republican. And gotcha. there that, you know, I mean, I, I can't imagine him. I've never heard the fact that he doesn't have opinions on anything outside of Al Sharpton is bad and race is real or whatever. I mean, it's it, the default position of him is you're a good Republican voting white. It is the Southern strategy effectively. But he never and, pushes that. He never pushes that stuff in his content. His content is all based on like scientific race realism and so the Southern strategy is what uh, Richard Nixon used to get elected twice in 68 and 1972. It was a recognition that civil rights laws had alienated Southern whites from the Democratic Party. And so by appealing to Americans who don't much care for black people, all right, that's how Republicans have had a great amount of success over the past well, 50 years. 
All right. So John Derbyshire says there are tens of millions of Americans who don't much like uh, black people, don't want to live around them. And these people overwhelmingly tend to vote Republican. Okay, back to Ronnie Goodman's excellent book, Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression, The Nature and Origins of Conservophobia. Nope, back to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Okay, from their entry on Carl Schmitt. Nope, did that already. Now, under Stephen Turner, his 2015 book, The Politics of Expertise. So Stephen Turner makes the point, is science primarily process-oriented or output-oriented, right? Scientific legitimacy depends upon output legitimacy as opposed to process legitimacy. So even if science follows all the, the processes that it's supposed to follow, if it does not result in you know, valuable outputs that uh, save people's lives and that make things better, right, then it's not legitimate. So science is not primarily process-oriented. It relies on output legitimacy. Science is legitimated by the fact that it allows us to produce valuable results, while democracy rests on process legitimacy. Were the rules of the process followed? So it doesn't matter if the people voted overwhelmingly for a bad candidate, right? The outcome isn't what matters. It is the process. So science is output focused democracy is process focused right what we know is the result of we think there is a system that assures us that what we take to be fact is being vetted and filtered through some sort of institutional processes that minimize error or correct for it this in particular is the liberal perspective so science operates with an idea of truth that uh, can be very different from the product of its institutional processes. And political and religious communities frequently see conflicts between what they regard as truth and the truths produced by their institutional processes. So is there a meta-halakhic morality? Is there a morality above and beyond Jewish law, for example? So from Karl Schmitt's Wikipedia entry, Karl Schmitt saw the office of the president as effective because of the power granted to the president to declare a state of emergency right so from my perspective and the schmittian perspective no constitution is ever going to be adequate to meet the challenges that a people will face so you always need the ability to declare a state of exception where the ordinary rules no longer hold and he who has the power to declare a state of exception he is the sovereign so in California, California was the first state to shut down when we had the COVID outbreak in 2020, when Governor Newsom mandated a shutdown and various police forces and local governments in California by and large cooperated and the people of California by and large cooperated. This showed that in this state of exception declared by Gavin Newsom, that Newsom was indeed sovereign. If the people had rebelled and the police had refused to enforce what Gavin Newsom legislated, then we would have a, a nonviolent civil war. So Carl Schmitt praised the ability of a president to declare a state of exception. State of exception is dictatorial, right? It's executive power and can frequently be much more effective than the slow 
and often ineffective processes of legislative processes, all right, legislative power reached through parliamentary discussion and compromise. So Carl Schmitt wanted to remove the taboos around the concept of dictatorship and show that this concept of dictatorship is absolutely implicit whenever power is wielded by means other than the slow processes of parliamentary politics and bureaucracy. So if the constitution of a state is democratic, then every exceptional negation of democratic principles, every exercise of state power independent of the approval of the majority can be called a dictatorship. So for Carl Schmitt, every government capable of decisive action must include a dictatorial element within its constitution. So uh, simple people think that dictatorship and democracy are opposites. In reality, there are no functioning democracies that don't have considerable elements of dictatorship. The American president, for example, has all the foreign policy powers of King George III. Right? The American president can send you know, nuclear weapons you know, against enemies. The American president can essentially do anything he wants to non-American citizens. The, the American president, the executive in the United States, has tremendous foreign policy power. So there was a, a great essay by two elite legal legal professors, Constitutional Dictatorship, Its Dangers and Its Design. And this essay makes the point that emergency power, right, the ability to define a state of exception, the ability to act decisively in a crisis, in reality is not actually concentrated in the person of the president, right? Rather, it's concentrated in the president office, which means it is distributed among many different executive and national security agencies, and what they do in emergency situations is done in secret. So there is a big disconnect between the president with his code of personality and with identifying value and action with a single individual and the actual process of constitutional dictatorship, which distributes decision-making among many comparatively faceless and anonymous institutions and individuals. So you have these two opposed elements of the modern American presidency. This is the schizophrenic nature of American constitutional dictatorship. You have distributed expertise and secrecy on the inside combined with a plebiscitory court of personality on the outside in the person of the president. So you have the outward manifestation of American power has increasingly little to do with the actual processes of American government. And pointing it's out not, scientific race realism, there's a tremendous amount of politics, which is all supporting Republicans. Well, no, it's not. It's, it's not pure science. People. It's supporting yeah, right. white people. It's supporting white people. He, he points out scientific facts about race, and he, he talks about bad things happening to white people that are unfair, basically. Somebody asked him once, what is the sole purpose of your whole thing and he said uh, uh fairness that was his answer one word well that's <laughs> baggy as hell to be but it's not partisan republicanism just, I've, I've heard him say this in a speech our whole point is just leave us alone yeah, yeah. It's a, libertarianism it's nonsense right. racial libertarianism you could call it i guess yeah yeah right which is sort of like lou rockwell 2.0 right i mean yeah I think and lou, rockwell was, about race. lou rockwell was pressing this people people are not lying about race again i when i was a member of the charles he gave a speech, which was the most like delusional thing I've ever heard in okay, my life. Jared Taylor. Well, okay, I'm exaggerating there, but he said that why can't liberals understand race? They just don't get it. Why we can't reach them? So the assumption was that conservatives somehow understand race. Right, that's the implication. The reverse, mm. like liberals yes. absolutely understand race. They know what it is. They understand it intently, intensely. It is actually conservatives who have like truly bought into colorblindness and fairness and just leave us alone and blah blah blah. 
I mean, yep. they are the ones that will invoke like Martin Luther King like every third sentence. Like it's like, yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> okay, Richard. So, I, anyway, I've I'm not here to bash him though. I'm just so bored with the shit. But go on. I've had conversations with conservative. There, there are a lot of conservatives as you're describing, but there are also a lot that do kind of get race, but they feel like they don't have permission to talk about it. And I've had conversations with conservatives trying to red pill them on race, and liberals trying to red pill them on race, and it's a consistent pattern. The liberals will get absolutely, genuinely outraged. They cannot believe that you're impl- saying that there's a. a, a, a Okay, let's have a look at the chat over on Odyssey. Says uh, Jared Taylor lives in reality. Can science be bought? Absolutely, science can be bought because science depends upon you know huge amounts of funding, in particular from from the government. Right? Science, generally speaking, isn't done by citizen scientists just you know working in their garage. So everybody responds to incentives, including scientists. IQ genetic difference or whatever and they they will just argue against it very adamantly conservatives will kind of be like yeah they'll kind of nod and they'll be like yeah yeah and they but they feel like they don't have any permission why isn't Jared Taylor embraced by conservatism well I'm not talking about those kind of establishment conservatives I'm talking about why isn't Jared Taylor embraced by conservatism because conservatism responds to incentives just like any other group the incentives right now in the West are not to be race realist. Uh, as a race realist, right, uh, Jared Taylor is going to be rejected and, and denied by everyone who wants mainstream acceptance and conservatism wants mainstream acceptance. Oh, they're every day. Any conservative. Like, why isn't he on Newsmax? Yeah, well, those kind of conservatives are as you described. But I've talked to a lot well, of Well, why isn't he on any? Like, why isn't he? Because that's controlled by Jews. Because it's controlled okay. by Jews. Well, Jews. this just seems rather easy. Like, again, it just seems, you know, there are these wicked Jews up there and all the whites are good and red-pilled and the no, Jews just keep preventing it. No, no it, I, think, I don't think that is an accurate portrait of where we are. And yeah, I, I, I would just say of... this. Like, we had eugenics in this country. We were leading the way. We, us in Sweden, in fact. Nazi Germany was, was falling behind in the eugenics promotion. They were, they were looking to America for inspiration. We also had immigration reform that was racially based. And it wasn't even racially based. It was actually ethnically based. It was Nordic immigration. We had all of those things when progressives were on the march, when highly educated WASP liberal elitists were in power and highly influential. And that is the class that Madison Grant came from. And Lothrop Stoddard, that's the class of Woodrow Wilson. H.G. Wells. President. Yeah, H.G. Mm-hmm. Wells. A president I'm kind of a bit of a revisionist on now. <laughs> I'm like a... And we've never had those things since. And... This notion that, like, you're going to appeal to Southern strategy voters and that they're going to do these things. They've never done these things. They've always been in opposition to the kind of things that Jared Taylor genuinely wants. Let me add, Richard, you know, and just to uh, um, add to my further point earlier as well, um, you know, the Russia issue is another issue that a lot of cons and the DR have attached to. And it's just like another, I mean, Russia's going to lose. And like, they're starting, like, the, you know, the West is turning the yeah. tide. And they just, they just latch on to every losing issue. And like, this is, Sort of, I, I get the sense, Dylan, and, and like maybe we are mis- misinterpreting you a little bit, but um, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. But I mean, it's just like I'll be blunt, maybe, and I don't want to put words in anyone else's mouth here, um, at least not you, Richard. But um, I mean, look, like I'm here to win. You know, like that's why we're here. Like we're here to win, and we recognize as, as Apollonians that we need to um, uh, grow our power and, and you know come to power if we're going to right all the wrongs with our people that we all agree on. And I mean, like, look, even if you thought that Alex Jones and his ilk and his audience had something to offer us, which I do disagree. Um, but even if they did, I mean, like in the current paradigm, like that's just a low status um, lot to be attached to right now. So, I mean, you know, like if we're trying to push Apollonianism, but if we're trying to push Apollonianism and if we're trying to push, um, you know, advocacy for our race, 
Hello, my fellow Apollonians. <laughs> I had one Jew who said to me, do you think that the reason the alt-right hates Jews is because Jews have something that they lack, such as a, a hero system, a, a religion, a cohesive, coherent community, like a sense of in-group identity, right? A transcendent purpose, meaning, connection. Here's uh, Mickey Cowles talking to Robert Wright about the three L.A. City councilmen who were caught on tape, three Latinos saying racist things against Jews and blacks and Armenians. ready. He already had a piece out of Semaphore. It was actually interesting. Was it good? I forget, I forget what it was. It had an interesting part. Um, the, uh, I promised I'd talk about Kevin DeLeon and yeah, yeah. the city councilman. Uh, I'll do it quickly. Uh, I don't think he should resign. He didn't say the racist things. Somebody else said the racist things about calling somebody a little monkey, and he didn't object. Well, he didn't know he was being taped, and there was any public was going to you know, ever see this racist thing. He just said, well, let this woman talk. I don't want to interfere. I have political fish to fry here. Uh -huh. uh, completely rational uh, thought. Uh, and, it, you know, it should take a high bar, high bar for outrage to deprive somebody of the seat that they were elected to. And I think the other woman crossed it. She she used a racist slur for a for a black kid, and she attacked a whole a tribe of Mexicans, the area of Mexicans, the Oaxacans, that said they were ugly. I mean, I just think, sorry, that's that sort of crosses the line. But De Leon didn't really say anything other than you know uh, that the, this white city councilman was was. Uh, flashing his black adopted child the way you would flash your Louis Vuitton bag, okay? So he was saying he used him as a piece, as a badge of something, which he probably did. So I don't think he should, you know, that's at least should be debatable. Uh, but so why are people so outraged by this? And I think the answer is, it was, I heard it on this, uh, some podcast, uh, it was on KCRW, uh, and it was KCRW is a very liberal, very woke station. It was a bunch of woke garbage, except at the end, the woman said, look, uh, you know, Latinos are now half the city. They're a growing part of the city. And people are always worried when they take power, will they take power as we are more citizens? We're, we're engaging this common practice, uh, uh, you know, this common life of Los Angeles. We want to make it better. We're like Italians uh, are now. We're we're just we're just part of the fabric, and we're you know we don't draw a racial distinction, or will they view it as a racial spoil system where once they were on top, nothing was going to stop, and they were just going to fuck over everybody else. And the, the this tape, forget racism, forget that this tape indicated to a lot of people that they are just going to fuck over everybody else, especially blacks, and that's what scared people. Uh, and that's a you know whether it is right or not. That's the most plausible explanation for why why this tape was so explosive. Yeah, that's a that's a great point there from Mickey Cow. I had not been following Vox Day for years, but I and I just associate him with 2016. But there's some fascinating report. I think it's actually like six weeks old or something like that. But of he was trying to produce some like Dixie themed comic book movie and he raised a million dollars from his fans and then it all got stolen Have you guys heard about this well i don't know if i have anything to say about it other than schadenfreude but this crowdsourcing stuff for these projects just i don't know 
if I've seen a single example of one that wasn't just a scam. Although I don't think that Vox Day was the one scamming people. I think he got scammed in a way, but nevertheless, he was the one who pushed it on people. Yeah, it's in the chat. I have not followed, but I remember following Vox Day back in the crazy, heady alt-right days. And um, then I remember him refusing to criticize Trump. He was one of these guys that, you know, once it was clear that there were, you know, we got out ahead of, you know, over our skis, out ahead of ourselves, and that there were some real problems with Trump. I remember he was the one of those that would refuse to criticize him. And then, um, then I believe he went into QAnon, like literally. I would think he would yes, be into the Christian nationalism thing. Wasn't he, wasn't he basically that, like Christian alt-right? Yeah, I think he is. I mean, I, I think there's, there's a huge crossover. I mean, if you have a Venn diagram of like yellow and, you know, or what is it? A Venn diagram of red and blue and red is you know, ultra online Trump fans and blue are QAnon slash Christian nationalists slash lunatics, the Venn diagram is just going to be a purple circle. <laughs> there is a lot of crossover. Um, <clears throat> anyway, I, um, I don't know if there's much to say other than a little bit of schadenfreude on, on that. Um, I am interested in the midterms. I, I did a kind of spontaneous space yesterday. I actually forgot to record it. So it is lost to the world. But um, I, which is fine. I was just on for about an hour and a half. So um, I am interested in talking about my prophecy for the midterms. I think I mentioned this like a week ago or maybe two weeks ago, but I was kind of itching to call for a Democratic win in both the House and the Senate, just to be a bit bold. So why is Richard Spencer so dismissive and resentful towards Republicans. Number one, he sees no possibility of becoming a player on the right. And number two, he just thinks they are now so low IQ. He just feels like they're beneath them. Interesting PBS Frontline documentary just came out on the holy war of Michael Flynn. I mean, there is a spiritual war and there is a political war. Georgia's election probe is advancing, seeking testimony from former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. Michael Flynn's whole life is really a story of culture war from start to finish. From Army General. I am a guy who spent my entire career thinking about the enemies that we are going to face. To conspiracy theorist. And we want you to know that we will not stand for a lie. General Flynn, you know, he's a living martyr. Be proud as Christians. Be proud as patriots. This idea that this was spiritual warfare, it's not even an undertow. The battle for the soul of America, using the church as a tool. Is this a spiritual awakening? You bet it is. Now, Frontline and the Associated Press investigate. What are you fighting for? Michael Flynn's holy war. I won't be denied. God bless you. God bless America. And thank you very much. It's interesting seeing uh, all these Christians blowing the shofar. You, you don't exactly expect to see that. Looking at the Odyssey chat, Luke, YouTube made you soft. Yeah, you internalize YouTube's terms of service. I mean, that's what happens. You internalize and you become more civil. You become more mainstream. You start to you know, inculcate YouTube's terms of service in how you conduct yourself in daily life, even off YouTube. Everything we do affects us. And so, yes, I'm still a big believer in COVID vaccines, right? I, I haven't, haven't changed on that. I've been, this is a life changing time. 
If America falls, there's no place to go. How much longer can we last? Ladies and gentlemen, please stand to your feet and greet When I first saw Michael Flynn speak to an audience, it was hard to reconcile who he once was with who he had become. Tonight, you're going to get an ass chewing from a general. A retired three-star general, once hailed as an intelligence genius. Today, he's touring the country as a leader in a far-right movement, trying to put its brand of Christianity at the center of civic life and institutions. We are a faith-based society, and that's in our DNA. It's in the DNA of the United States of America. To his critics, he is a conspiracy theorist, a criminal. Okay, there's no alternative but to a faith-based society. It all depends on what you put your faith in. So liberals and mainstream people put their faith in the process. They put their faith in the American constitutional process. They put their faith in the courts. They put their faith in our leading cultural institutions like Harvard University or the, the New York Times. Traditionalists, conservatives put their faith in God or in traditional ways of doing things. Nobody can live without a hero system. All right. So faith simply means that you recognize the need for a hero system. We all are in danger of feeling you know, just absolutely crushed by our own insignificance. And so we all need a hero system to align with some kind of transcendent cause, some transcendent values. And that way, you know, we, we feel like our life has, has significance, right? But every hero system depends upon a, a leap of faith. So... There's no alternative to faith. Like a hero system is a biological necessity. A narrative is a biological necessity. We have to believe that our lives have transcendent purpose and meaning. And it is the hero system that gives us that meaning. But liberalism is just another hero system. It presents itself as the transcendence of hero system, as just being purely objective and empirical. But it's not. It is just another form of partisanship. It is another form of a faith-based narrative, a faith-based hero system. You cannot transcend the biological necessity for hero systems and for narratives. And a traitor. But within this movement... He is a martyr, a warrior, and an evangelist. I am an absolute product of prayer. Prayer is probably the most powerful weapon system known to man. This is what scares our enemies. Okay, the left, the socialists, the Marxists, the communists. This is what scares them. How did this respected general return from the battlefields of the war on terror only to see a greater enemy at home? I am not going to turn my country. So if I said to this reporter, you are equally a person of faith, just as much as Michael Flynn. You also have a partisan agenda, just as much as Michael Flynn. You also believe in a hero system, just as much as Michael Flynn. You also have a non-rational, non-empirical, biological need for a hero system, just as much as Michael Flynn. Right? She would find that confounding, right? modern secular liberals would, would reject that. They'd say, you know, there's absolutely no way that's true. But we all need that, that hero system. We can't do without it. 
Let's get a little something here from Fox News. Howard Kurtz. A higher figure than for Donald Trump, for Joe Biden, the government, or Supreme Court. If you look at the partisan breakdown, 89% of Trump voters and 31% of Biden voters view the MSM as a major threat. But now if you throw in those who say the fourth estate is a minor threat to democracy, the figure among Biden voters rises to 66%. And for Trump voters, 98%. Look, these are mostly self-inflicted wounds. Years of political bias, sensationalism, and serious mistakes have decimated public trust in the press, especially on the right. Now, for some folks in this hyperpolarized era, threat to democracy may be a proxy for, I just don't like the media, or I think the media is unfair to my side, or too nice to the other side. And the Trump-style press bashing has taken its toll, but I'm not going to sugarcoat it. We have lost our role as a fair umpire of political disputes. The fans want to throw us off the field. Even the fact-checkers are derided as partisan. I hate that so many Americans now view my yeah, some good good points there by Howard Kurtz. I mean, you you I started watching the the baseball playoffs. Uh, I saw my my Dodgers knocked out of the playoffs in four games by the San Diego Padres, and it's so incredibly frustrating. Sometimes when you watch the playoffs, they show you the strike zone, and so you can very clearly see whether or not a pitch was in the strike zone. So I think some networks do this, other networks don't. Well, it's very frustrating given that we have the technology to have 100% accurate calls on balls and strikes, and we're not using it. We're relying on umpires who get it wrong at least 15% of the time. So the Dodgers felt in, in game four that you know they had a lot of calls at the plate go against them. And so as a fan, it's frustrating when the people who are calling balls and strikes don't do so accurately. My profession has a threat to democracy, but I can't say I'm shocked. I'm Howard Kurtz, and this is Media Buzz. One sign just over two weeks before the midterms that the election is moving in the Republicans' direction is that even liberal pundits and news outlets are conceding the point. The party of woke scolds and gender studies grads now realizing that the momentum they had over the summer is melting away faster than Joe Biden's ice cream. The feeling out here on the trail is um, it's not red wave. Uh, the prospects of large Republican pickups in the House are now a lot greater than they were two months ago, even six weeks ago. We are about to see a wave. I think the real question is going to be whether Kevin McCarthy ends up getting 40 seats. Democrats are pessimistic by nature. <laughs> and I think it's because Democrats are empathetic. And so they think, oh, God, it's all, it's, all is lost. Only 7% of voters uh, rank a threat to democracy as a major issue this election cycle. Yeah. I find that so depressing. I can't begin to tell you. That's yeah. why I don't like polls. Joining us now to analyze the coverage, Robbie Suave, senior editor at Reason Magazine. And in San Diego... Great. I, I wanted to know how to pronounce Robbie's last name, so it's Suave. That helps. All right, looking at the Odyssey chat, uh, Luke, you don't really believe those vaccinations work. Work in what regard? Do they eliminate the possibility of catching COVID? No, they do not. Do they eliminate the possibility of transmitting COVID? No, they do not. Do they increase your chances of not dying from COVID? Yes, they do. So for, for when you're asked a question, do you believe in X, Y, Z, believe in it or not, in what regard, in what respect? And then YouTube chat notes that uh, tennis has switched completely over to AI. 
And so you get much more accurate calls of whether a ball is in or out. So the chair ref is only there to enforce the match. You also have multiple appeals in cricket. So far more accurate umpiring in tennis and cricket and other sports that do instant replay. Right, back to this Fox News discussion. Laura Fink, Democratic strategist who runs Rebel Communications. Robbie, if most of the mainstream media are now acknowledging that Republicans again have the upper hand in the midterms, it must be true. Yeah, the uh, situation is looking very good for Republicans. I mean, it's still very close in a number of, ra of races. 49-51, These are all very plausible outcomes. They're, they're fun from like a sports handicapping perspective. Um, was there some denial in the media until maybe the last week or so? Yeah, I think uh, I think the media, the mainstream media, doesn't understand the mood of the voters. Um, and, and that you know, Whoopi and that Joy and Whoopi clip from the View really yeah. got at it that the mainstream media is obsessed with election Trump, et cetera. Voters care about how much gas costs, how much food costs, that sort of thing. Oh, it's so depressing. <laughs> and and it, it, it bothers them, but it's true. And, and you know, in the summer when the picture looked a little bit brighter for a minute, Democrats were coming back. Mm -hmm. The economic reality is hitting voters again very hard, and that is to the Republicans' advantage, and there's no way to claim that it's not. Laura, it's a fact of life that both parties uh, usually talk up their chances even when things look bleak. But when you have pundits saying they... Okay, Favor. let's go past the Democratic uh, seem to be Whoops. truth in it. But there was a Democrat. So many mistakes these last couple cycles. And so so the question is, have they finally figured out how to how to call on the phone? You know, a, 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 a voter who is skeptical of mainstream institutions and, you know, doesn't want to be reached and doesn't want to give you their opinion, doesn't want to be shamed, but privately is going to vote for conservatives. But on that point, Robbie, the press does tend to hyperventilate, excuse me, over every new poll. Yeah. And sometimes they're outliers. But in, in, when the polls are off, as they were uh, in the last two cycles, uh, they have tended to overestimate Democratic strength. And we could see that again. We absolutely could see that again. I, I mean, it's it's what do you make of, of findings that, for instance, a Brian Kemp is, I think, very likely is going to win with a significant margin for the, the gubernatorial race in, in Georgia. Georgia. Yeah. But then you have you know, Walker maybe a little bit behind uh, Raphael Warnock. You know, you have in Arizona, you have the gubernatorial candidate, Kerry Lake, doing better than Blake Masters, the Republican Senate candidate. Are voters really saying we like this Republican and not that Republican? It's hard to imagine so many, like a large number of people voting that way. So then you question, well, are the polls undersampling the Republican Senate candidate in those cases? Well, it's not crazy that voters might decide in some instances to split their tickets. But Laura, when Matt Bennett, who heads a moderate Democrat, that's fear. The midterm map happening in the midterm impact are necessary kind of fast forward being to it the in the early voting. We'll so be to careful to uh, toss the confetti before the uh, the votes are counted. Right. Look, in a midterm election, turnout is everything. And it's also hard to predict. Look, Robbie, was it a blunder for almost all of the mainstream media to write off these Trump-backed conservative candidates as too extreme? Oh, it's fine for a primary, but, you know, they're going to get absolutely decimated in the general election. When the real clear politics average uh, shows Herschel Walker uh, in Georgia down by two points, Blake Masters in Arizona down by two and a half points, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania trailing John Fetterman by two and a half points. Uh, absolutely. Those, those are like margin of error. Yeah, absolutely a mistake to write them off. Again, because voters are not... 
they don't have the luxury of worrying about these loftier threats to democracy kinds of claims. Again, they're worried about being able to afford food, being able to afford gas. And crime. And crime and, crime and some of the things going on in their school districts. I mean, yeah. independent Democrats are going to vote Republican for the first time because they don't like pandemic-era school policies and some of the curriculum issues. At the same time, it is true, it still is true, these, these, they're slightly behind in some of these races. I do have the sense that different Republican candidates could be polling as well as a Brian Kemp or a Kerry Lake in those races. And it, it's, not, it's not wrong to say, well, you know, if Blake Masters loses by half a percentage point, would some other Republican have won by three percentage points? Right. Okay, let's get back to this PBS Frontline documentary on Michael Flynn. Over to my children and my grandchildren, I'm just not going to turn over a communist country to them. No way. No way. And when- Okay, so obviously that's dramatic overstatement that uh, if, if the left wins, America's not going to become a communist nation. But sometimes dramatic overstatement is effective, right? Sometimes overstatement is ineffective and maladaptive sometimes overstatement is effective and adaptive where is his crusade headed next we're here in our land we have got to start demonstrating even more courage god bless you god bless america and thank you very much peace Okay, so this is a much more traditional conception of life, all right? This is the, the traditional medieval notion of holy spaces, holy places, holy people, holy symbols, all right? This is not the, the Protestant Reformation strategic autonomous Buffett individual, but this is much more of a sense that we're in it together, what's going on with you affects me, that there are sacred symbols such as the flag, there are sacred places such as the United States of America. This is very different from the liberal's perspective on life. Michael Flynn's Holy War here on PBS Frontline. If you've been paying attention to the media, the Associated Press came out with what can only be described as a hatchet job against Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. Yeah, thanks, Josh. There's a darkness that they have. I mean, there's almost like a soullessness to the people that wrote the article. Anyway, I'll, I'll ping you when I get in the office and we'll figure it out. Okay. All right. Bye. I've been following Michael Flynn for Frontline and the Associated Press for over a year. I think she's very attractive. I mean, she seems very smart. She's, she's very attractive. And I think this, this documentary is pretty even-handed. A lot of people dismiss Flynn as a fringe figure, but our reporting showed that he's become one of the most prominent right-wing leaders in America. He's building a movement, headlining rallies. So Donald Trump is a master at speaking to the 95 IQ crowd. Uh, Nick Fuentes is very good at speaking to the 100 IQ crowd. Uh, David Duke also speaks to the 100 IQ crowd. Uh, Tucker Carlson speaks to the 105 IQ crowd. Uh, Jared Taylor or Richard Spencer, they talk to a 120 IQ crowd. Uh, General Flynn, he, he speaks to a 100 IQ crowd. Like a crowd that has an average IQ of 120 is not generally speaking going to respond positively to his message. Is that draw anti-vaxxers, election deniers, and extremists from around the country. He's building alliances. He's made around 100 political endorsements for this year's elections. Partnership with Frontline and the result of a month-long investigation. 
and he's building a nationwide grassroots operation that's spending millions to advance its agenda. So many of these journalists are shocked when they find out that uh, the most passionate, devoted, self-sacrificing members of a military also tend to be the most nationalist, right? So the military experience will will drive many people into a more intense form of nationalism, and that's what's happened with Michael Flynn. General Michael Flynn, Our reporting touched a nerve. Messages started to come in almost immediately. And Flynn himself responded. So notice she had to take a breath because we are evolutionarily designed to be very good at dissecting other people's attempts to manipulate us, but we tend to be terrible at dissecting our own abilities to manipulate ourselves. So we naturally tend towards an imperviousness to criticism from others because it's evolutionarily adaptive to be good at dissecting others' ability to manipulate you at the same time to have a disproportionate amount of faith in your own thinking and your own opinions. Because with, with more confidence, right, you're going to have more strength to make your way in a dangerous world. So she has to steal herself before reading these critical comments. So we have a natural instinct to reject any criticism. And so she has to hype herself up into reading the criticism. ...in a 90-minute video denouncing it. Look at the opposition that we are up against. We are in a fight for the very survival of our country, and there has been an infiltration of communists into the federal government, and there are external powers that support them. I haven't mentioned the New World Order, which I just did. These are all forces that we are up against. They're going to use every element that they can, and this article is among them. And actually, it leads to a full documentary that's going to be coming out, and it's going to be, you know, really, it's going to be a really horrible thing. I've been an AP correspondent in Rhode Island for 17 years, covering local and national stories. Michael Flynn usually refuses to speak with what he calls the mainstream media, and most of the people close to him won't either. But Rhode Island, where he's from, is like a small town. And here, I'm known as a local reporter. I I just don't think that... Questions okay, about his brother in the documentary. But he said the movement Michael Flynn is building today is misunderstood. This country was founded on Judeo-Christian values. I often think myself, you know, I think Helen would be proud of the activities that we're involved in. I think Chris. All right. So saying the United States is founded on Judeo-Christian values, obviously, that is a more traditional conception of the United States than the modern secular liberal perspective. On the other hand, it is a more modern perspective than the Christian nationalist perspective. All right. So Judeo-Christian is a compromise instead of saying Christian. So Christians had you know, 10 times more influence on the founding and development of, of the United States than Jews, 10, 20 times as much. So Judeo-Christian is a compromise with the truth. It is a compromise with you know, traditional conceptions of exclusive religious claims, yet it is still a more traditional approach than the modern secular liberal approach. So, for example, 
my my friend Ricardo, he has a more traditional approach than I do. He sees the the power of demons all around us, and I don't believe in demons. So in that respect, I'm more modern than Ricardo, but I'm more traditional and medieval than our ruling liberal elites. Christians are very involved in the conservative movement. It's no different than it was, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you know, especially with, with Reagan. There's a great spiritual awakening in America. A renewal of the traditional values that have been the bedrock of America's goodness and greatness. Michael Flynn loves Ronald Reagan. He quotes him constantly. There is sin and evil in the world, and we're enjoined by Scripture and the Lord Jesus to oppose it with all our might. Reagan saw the culture wars and the war against communism as part of the same spiritual battle. We can do it, doing together what no one church could do by itself. God bless you and thank you very much. A war at home and a war overseas. The two would become deeply intertwined in Michael Flynn's story. As Ronald Reagan said, and I quote, if we lose freedom here, there is no place to escape to. This is the last stand on earth. So I often talk to exclusivist members of a particular religious community, whether Christian or Jewish. They believe very strongly in the exclusive you know, truth of the claims of their religion. They, they differentiate. They, they make a very strong distinction between their religion, their, their group, and outside groups. And my tendency is to point out that we're all tremendously affected by each other. So, for example my relationship with God and your relationship God with God is profoundly affected by our relationship with our fathers. I tended to have a distant relationship with my father. I didn't have no relationship. I had a distant and difficult relationship with my father where there wasn't a lot of communication going on between us. I have a similar relationship with God. I have a difficult and distant relationship with God. So, that's a way that psychological factors and social factors completely outside of the exclusive claims of your religion can have a profound effect with how you practice your religion, right? If you're having digestive trouble, right, that's going to shape how you practice your religion, right? If you're going through health problems, right, you are going to be less happy and you're going to gravitate more towards texts and practices and parts of your exclusive religion that you know, resonate more with, with someone who is unhappy. So psychological, social forces ha have a profound effect on how we understand and how we practice our religion. So I will talk to Orthodox Jews who say, well, God gave the Torah, the Torah Shemayim, it came from, came from heaven. But many of the, the stories in the Torah are found in cultures that surround uh, the Israelites that come from other Middle Eastern cultures. And these stories have been transformed, they've been reformed, they've been changed and adapted to meet uh, the needs of the people Israel, right? 
nobody just grows straight out of the ground. No religion just grows straight out of the ground. No culture or community or literary text grows straight out of the ground. Every culture, every community, every literary work is a product of a particular time and place. And so even if you believe that every single word of the Torah is divine and that it came down from heaven and that it is absolutely perfect, the situations that you find yourself in will have a profound effect on how you understand, interpret, and practice that Torah. Right, so if you're surrounded by people who are hostile to you, right, you will practice and think regard the Torah in one way. If you are surrounded by people you admire who are also monotheists, you will understand and practice your Torah in a different way. For example, Jews in Eastern Europe, by and large, had hostile relationships with the non-Jews around them. So Jews from Eastern Europe tend to be much more radical and much more susceptible to anti-Gentile thinking than Jews from Western Europe, who by and large had admiration for the non-Jews around them. So the same Torah is operating in Western Europe as it did in Eastern Europe, but the situation is different, and that has a profound effect on how the Torah is practiced. So Eastern European Jews, because they had hostile relations with non-Jews, tended towards much more exclusivist claims and towards practicing the Torah in in a way that created much more distance with non-Jews, while Jews from Western Europe, who admired, by and large, non-Jews, tended to practice and understand the Torah in a way that was much friendly, much more friendly towards non-Jews, and they felt less of a need to create distance between themselves and non-Jews. So there all these social, psychological, uh, literary, political, cultural forces outside of particular religious texts that are external to the exclusive claims of a religion that are going to have a profound effect on how you understand and practice your religion. This is why you know, more sophisticated scholars talk about the fiction of individuality, because almost everything that we think and feel is conditioned by the group that we're in and by our life experiences. So even when I'm sitting at home alone reading a book, I have a sense of, you know, my friend Laponius and, you know, how much I want to share this text with him. And I wonder, you know, how would Laponius think about this? And uh, could I, could I, you know, manufacture some, you know, funny quotes from Laponius in reaction to these ideas I want to share so I can then put Laponius's, you know, greatest quotes on my Twitter feed to promote this live stream. So even when we're walking down the street absolutely alone, we carry the sense of the most important people in our lives with us. We are social creatures even when we're completely alone. And even if we believe 100% in the exclusive divine claims of our religion, we're going to be profoundly affected by the outsiders around us and by all sorts of external factors aside from our religion, such as psychological, social, cultural, and literary. I am a guy who spent my entire career, really, thinking about the enemies that we are going to face, principally overseas. It was an impressive show of force as U.S. paratroopers filled the skies over central... He started out in the 82nd Airborne Division. In the first era, it was communism. So everything we do affects us. I have a background in journalism, so I tend to think in terms of, you know, who, what, when, where, why. And whatever your profession is, that's going to have a profound effect on how you live. I spent several years working in landscaping. So when I look at a front yard or a backyard, I, I think about drainage. How is the water going to drain here? That, that experience in landscaping affected me. And so people who risk their lives 
to carry out you know, military missions overseas, it would make sense that that experience would be transformative. The, when you have particularly intense experiences, they tend to have you know a disproportionate influence on you. So if on your first date, you do something that that creates, you know, you know, a high adrenaline rush. You, you see a horror movie, or you have some sort of experience where, where you're mugged, or, or something like that. Right, that is going to create an endorphin rush, rush, an adrenaline rush, and is going to be much more likely to bond you. So, when a couple have an exclusive sexual relationship, all right. The, the pheromones, the the dopamine rush, the you know explosive, exciting, intimate experiences that they have together, you know, bond bond a couple. So when a couple starts having sex, I heard one Orthodox rabbi describe it. It's like putting a key in a lock and turning it, and so you're opening a door of connection between two people. So our experiences have a tremendous effect on us, and so it doesn't surprise me that. Michael Flynn risking his life to fight for his country would be changed by these experiences in a more nationalist direction where he values ends such as the survival and welfare of his people above processes. In Central America, we had places in the Caribbean. We had problems in Africa. Horsemen forever, so is Ronald Reagan. As a young intelligence officer, Flynn took part in the invasion of Grenada and worked with U.S.-backed right-wing forces in Central America. When he went to Iraq and Afghanistan, his enemies shifted from communism to what he called radical Islam. In Iraq, working under General Stanley McChrystal, he revolutionized... So if you're fighting for your life, you're much more likely to see those who are trying to kill you in terms of good and evil, right? It's very hard to be objective and disinterested when you're fighting for your life. So it doesn't surprise me that Michael Flynn would be influenced by these life and death experiences into a good and evil us versus them, in-group versus out-group view of the Revolutionized counterterrorism operations to deal with the threat of Al-Qaeda. He built a reputation as a brilliant officer while serving as the head of intelligence for an elite covert force, the Joint Special Operations Command, or JSOC. My first awareness of Mike Flynn was probably in the JSOC when he joined JSOC as the J2, critical position. JSOC was the premier command in the U.S. military. So you can say many things about Michael Flynn, but you can't say he's low IQ, and, and you can't deny that he had a brilliant record in the U.S. military. Without question. Doug Wise is a veteran of the CIA who worked closely with JSOC. I spent three decades undercover with CIA as an operator at a station chief service in Afghanistan, the Balkans, South Asia, Iraq, chief of operational training for CIA, and then ultimately appointed as the deputy director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, Mike Flynn, and then the incumbent director. Dr. Evil was my call sign. Wise was part of the invasion force that entered Baghdad and says he saw Flynn's impact in Iraq firsthand. At that time in Iraq, they had built an operational machine in JSOC to literally triple and quintuple the number of raids and operations that the force could, could undertake. Once they got that set in motion, it was lightning fast. This was innovation of the highest order. 
I went to Iraq in 2005. It was hard and fast. I can't even count. I lost count. We all did. We probably did 150 raids in a three-month span that summer. Jack Murphy served in one of Michael Flynn's JSOC units in Iraq, carrying out these accelerated raids. There were times where they had us rolling out the gate and I had no idea where we were going. And they were like, we'll get the grid to you. And then as we're driving down one of the highways around Mosul, I'm having to type it into the computer. And we hit that target. And then while we're there, there's more grids coming in over the radio. No mistake, okay, man, this call. is a religious war. Got together. Jack Murphy. So you would expect that, that most wars would take on a religion-like intensity. Right? You're fighting for your life. You're going to start thinking and feeling in terms of good and evil. Members other soldiers who embraced worldviews similar to Flynn's. Our platoon got together, a chaplain got up and gave his little speech and told us that we were fighting a religious war. And make no mistake, men, this is a religious war. My team sergeant in Special Forces was an interesting guy, and I, I liked him. Like me, he had come from Ranger Battalion. I listened to him, I respected him. And he played this documentary, and it was all like New World Order stuff and conspiracy stuff. In the near future, Earth is dominated by a powerful world government. And I remember watching and just being fascinated by it. I asked him to borrow it, and I, and I watched it myself. I was like, oh, man, this is some crazy stuff. And that was my introduction to Alex Jones. For New World Order will fall. The answer to 1984 is 1776. Jeremy continued on this path, and he was at the Capitol on January 6th with the Oath Keepers. Jeremy Brown would end up getting arrested and charged for his role in the insurrection. He calls himself a political prisoner. My name is Jeremy Brown, inmate 1875858. And this is my warning to America. The oppressor liber, liberty or death. We haven't even begun to cope with the social repercussions of fighting two wars, two failed Okay, so people who are using liberty or death rhetoric and storming the U.S. Capitol, I think they're more focused on, on ends rather than means. I don't think they're particularly process-focused guys. Wars. And in the absence of an enemy to fight, some veterans decide to fight each other. And you hear them start talking about civil war and uh, talking about politics and the most dire sorts of existential yeah, I'm just curious, did these guys who fought in all these wars, did they fight so that they could create a country, you know, safe for gay marriage, safe for, you know, gender transitions, a society, you know, safe for work culture, a society that uh, crushes free speech? I don't think most of them fought for these values. Uh, terms, and that it's us against them. Well, the more difficult life is, the more likely you are to see things in terms of us versus them. And if you have good relations with your neighbors, like Jews generally did in Western Europe, they're less susceptible to us versus them thinking compared to Jews from Eastern Europe who tended to have much more negative relations with non-Jews. In 2012, Flynn returned to Washington. He was promoted again to head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, the DIA. But his increasingly politicized worldview put him at odds with the Obama administration. Doug Wise briefly served as his second in command. So when I show up... 
So a, a worldview of demons and angels of good versus evil, in some circumstances, that's going to be adaptive. In some circumstances, that's going to be effective. In some circumstances, that's going to give you the strength and the power that you need to get things done. But if your position calls for more objectivity, then this kind of outlook is going to be maladaptive. Up at DIA, I find, you know, a, a Mike Flynn who's in conflict with his senior executive leadership team. And part of that is because I'm not sure he really bought into the civilian leadership of the military. You're known for, for your frankness. People are saying he's brash and that his leadership approach isn't good. And then we start to hear the phrase Flynn facts. The most famous Flynn fact is um, um, Iran has killed more Americans than Al-Qaeda. And at the time, people said, but that's demonstrably not true. Um, Al-Qaeda was behind 9-11. And, and he didn't back down from it. He stood by it. Um, and I think that's really when this idea of Flynn facts took off. Every analyst that ever briefed him came away with it. Wait, 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 wait. Iran killed hundreds of American soldiers in Iraq. Iran funded, supported, often trained Shia militia in Iraq. Is it, is it not possible that they killed just such a large number of American soldiers that Michael Flynn was actually correct? A Flynn fact. Yeah. Things that were not consistent with real facts, real intelligence, and common sense that Flynn passionately believed in. That's what a Flynn fact was. Glib Medley says we trans them there, so we don't trans them here. Laponia says Dan Crenshaw lost an eye for trans rights and gay marriage, bro. And he had a lot of Flynn was forced out of DIA in 2014. He left the military and formed an alliance with Donald Trump in the 2016 campaign against Hillary Clinton. For Flynn, the war had come home. We must recognize that America has enemies in our homeland and abroad. Radical Islam metastasizing throughout the world. I think we always treated these as faraway wars that would have no second or third order effects on the United States. Our way of life is in jeopardy. Our very existence is threatened. But when I look at my Flynn, I think those wars changed us too. We do not need us. a weak, spineless president who is more concerned about issuing apologies than in protecting Americans. Lock her up. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Lock her up. Exactly right. Okay, it doesn't sound like a terribly process-oriented, you know, let the let the system work kind of guy. He, he seems to have uh, ends in mind more than processes. There's nothing wrong with that. After Trump's election, he made Flynn his national security advisor. Okay, so Michael Flynn's Holy War. It's a PBS Frontline documentary. Okay, are there any other key key moments to, to play? Not so sure about that. All right, I got something shocking for you. Brace yourselves. 
I've read uh, Maggie Haverman's new biography of Donald Trump, Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. And apparently there's a, there's a chapter in here, chapter four, Blind to the Beautiful Mosaic. So what do you think that chapter is all about? Donald Trump, Blind to the Beautiful Mosaic. I mean, why Back do you want Richard that to be attached Spencer. to you saying you have a hologram? That's not what I said. I said, even if you divorce, forget his audience, even if we say all of them are trash and undesirable, in Alex Jones's mind, those are people searching for the truth and unsatisfied. They know something's wrong. And he is preaching to them garbage, misdirecting them towards garbage and DR3 and villainizing everything that, you know, he, so what he's doing in his well, mind. That's my, I, that might be, yeah. I mean, I, I think we could more or less agree on that point. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's just a kind of like larger point in here. And I would, I'm going to start writing about this, but it's like this realignment that I'm talking about is a real thing. And there is this question of like, which side of these things is ascendant. And so, you know, like the FDR coalition produced a one party state more or less in Congress from 1932, well into the eighties. And there were some exceptions to this, for instance, you know, the Republicans would sometimes take power. They, um, Oftentimes in the midterms, the Democrats would lose seats, even if they kind of retained power. Uh, but it was a one-party state. And they, whatever you want to say about these liberal reforms, they actually were enacted. You know, the Great Society, that was a paradigm-changing thing. And that included a lot of stuff that, that I don't like. Um, the 64 and 65 big acts, yeah. But they actually did, like, really implement something. And so you have this coalition of Southern Democrats who were kind of the ugly stepchild way of the coalition. And, uh, and then basically urban people and uh, ethnics and African-Americans, they, they majorly came over in the 60s, but they were coming over with FDR. And this kind of lasted for a while. And in the 60s, you had a turning point, you had the Wallace campaigns, Dixiecrats, although that was earlier. Uh, and you had this move away, move away from the mainstream Democratic Party and ultimately going to the GOP and kind of dixifying the GOP. Uh, so it was no longer the Midwestern party of farmers and so on. Um, it was becoming the Southern party. And that's where we are. I do think that there is a remarkable realignment taking place. And none of these things are perfect. You know, you have to paint with broad strokes, but they do generally hold. Educated suburban whites are flocking to the Democratic Party. People, again, Okay, let's go to the chat. Laponia says, my dream is to sit on my front porch with my trans-Muslim neighbor smoking weed while cleaning out our AR-15s. That is the embodiment of the American dream. And Glib notes, gorgeous mosaic is the term that black mayor David Dinkins used in place of melting pot. Yes, very, very wholesome commentary. All right. Chapter four, Maggie Haveman's new biography, Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. Do you feel broken right now? Do you feel all torn up inside? Do you want to cry? Are you looking for a safe place to share your feelings? Well, you have arrived at the right place. And uh, I, forgive me if I start crying as I read the, the following words, because it's becoming increasingly apparent to me that the Donald Trump is blind to the beautiful mosaic. And what could be more sad than that? Up to that point in his life, meaning about 1986, Donald Trump had had few meaningful interactions with New Yorkers of color. Think how impoverished his life was. Like, yeah, he was banging supermodels. Like, yeah, he was rich and famous. Yeah, he was 
you know, ostensibly, you know, making money and, and exercising power. But the poor bloke, he had few meaningful interactions with New Yorkers of colors. I, I mean, I want you to look forward to my forthcoming book. It is called 39 Black Men Who Have Shaped My Life. Uh, th this poor bloke went through 40 years of his life with few meaningful interactions with New Yorkers of color. Just makes me sad. I, I'm just going to tear up. <laughs> he, he's so blind to the beautiful mosaic. When Donald Trump was a child in the decades after World War II, the city's segregated neighborhoods were cauldrons of bigotry and resentment. Okay, so bigotry and resentment, the downside of having strong in-group identity and cohesive, coherent neighborhoods. So overall, I like sometimes segregated neighborhoods. I don't want all neighborhoods to be segregated, but I want people to have the option to live in a segregated neighborhood if they want to have high social trust and high cohesion. Right? People should have the right to live in a segregated neighborhood. And yes, strong in-group identity is always accompanied by negative feelings about outgroups. So it doesn't bother me that a city will have segregated neighborhoods cleaved off into us versus them. If you think in terms of us versus them, it means you have a strong in-group identity. Generally speaking, that is a happier, more adaptive way to go through life. Now, how can you say Donald Trump was racist? His childhood home in Jamaica Estates. I mean, that sounds pretty multiracial to me. It was just a seven-minute drive from Hollis, Queens, which had been primarily been settled by black residents since after the Korean War. But the two may as well have been many miles apart. What a shame that Donald Trump didn't spend more time in Hollis getting to know his African-American fellow citizens. The borough was on its way to becoming one of the most racially and ethnically diverse places on earth. Sounds like heaven. I mean, is that how it worked out? Did they have low crime rates, high social trust, high rates of cohesion? Is it a friendly, happy place? But Trump never appeared to value the unique multiculturalism of his surroundings. Gosh, that is so sad. I trust that that you appreciate the unique multiculturalism of your surroundings. I know I do in Los Angeles. I, I thank God every day that, that I live in a city that's so incredibly multiracial. Black people were not known to be part of Fred Trump's circle of influence. So sad. Donald Trump's father, right? Fred Trump didn't have a lot of black people in his circle of influence. Donald spoke favorably about black people who succeeded in entertainment or sports. Well, that's wrong. Those aren't the right side of black people, right type of black people you should speak favorably about. But he would recount that Roy Cohn had advised him to hope for a black judge, the implication being that they could be manipulated. Less intelligent? God forbid. And associates record Trump musing about having black judges preside over his cases. Well, Contingency lawyers, personal injury lawyers, plaintiff lawyers love to try cases in front of inner city juries. They expect that they will be uh, more easily manipulated and they will give more generous verdicts. So if you're a contingency plaintiff attorney in Los Angeles, you want to try your case in downtown much more than in Van Nuys or in Santa Monica. Donald Trump told associates that one of his security guards disliked black people and was aggressive when they got too close to Trump. Oh, that's terrible. Why would a security guard have any negative feelings about black people? And why would security guards become aggressive when, when the gorgeous mosaic gets too close to Donald Trump? Trump continued throughout his life to identify ethnic groups with the article they. 
as in I have a great relationship with the blacks. That is so sad. That is, that's dichotomous us versus them thinking. I have more faith in, in people rediscovering their common humanity in the gorgeous mosaic. Over my years of reporting in New York City, Trump was the only political figure other than another Queens-born politician, Andrew Cuomo, who ever publicly used that specific phrase, the blacks. It reflected not just a minimizing, reductive view, which is so sad, but a transactional one, that ethnic and racial groups were simply discrete units to be won over as allies in elections or in real estate or zoning battles. Well, guess what? Life forces us to frequently be transactional. You can't have an I-thou relationship with everyone, right? The pressures of life force us to minimize and reduce other people at times so that we can have more intense, wholehearted relations with others, right? If you're having wholehearted, intense, I-thou relations with some people, it means that other people have to be treated in transactional, reductive, and minimal ways, Trump publicly demonstrated little interest in the civil rights movement. That's so sad. His college years coincided with one of the most intense and geographically widespread moments for race relations in our country's history, and he had little interest in that. So sad. Trump experienced that racial tumult at a remove. Such a shade that he wasn't there in the midst of it, where so much good times were going down, so much happiness and joy. When uh, Tony Glidman arrived at the Trump Organization in 1986, he insisted on bringing along his assistant of the city's housing agency, a young Jamaican immigrant named Jacqueline Williams. At the time, Trump was known to invoke stereotypes of black people such as laziness. Look, we all know that there's absolutely no connection between stereotypes and truth. This is so sad. Like The reason that we have stereotypes is because they're completely removed from reality. They have absolutely nothing to do with reality. They're not useful generalizations, guys. Trump's assistant initially expressed anxiety at the suggestion of hiring a black woman. When uh, this black woman interviewed, she was told, you're beautiful anyway, so you'll fit right in. Gosh, so sad. Trump's most sustained encounters with black people came as he pushed beyond real estate and into the sports business. Who would have thought that? Like, I would have thought that if uh, Donald Trump was spending his time in nuclear physics, in, you know, high IQ operations like uh, wheeling and dealing in real estate, that he would have had many sustained encounters with black people. But surprisingly, he had more sustained encounters with black people in sports rather than in high finance. Sadly, the new proximity to black athletes, celebrities, and political figures did little to change how Donald Trump talked with people about race. Trump had seemed a largely oblivious bystander to so many of the social and cultural revolutions that defined the young adult years of many of his peers. But as new opportunities pushed Trump beyond the lily-white milieu of his adolescence, his social ambitions pulled him from the facade of traditionalist domesticity that his father had erected in Jamaica estates and toward a world where sex seemed to be at the forefront of everything. Ah, I wonder if multiculturalism had anything to do with creating a society where sex was increasingly important. Do all racial, religious, ethnic groups and cultures give the, the same emphasis to sex? I'm asking for a friend. Greatest irony of Donald Trump is that he brought Hispanics into the GOP. And by Hispanic, I'm... You know, we're talking, it's a mixed bag to say the least, but we're basically talking about room temperature IQ people. And 
they are coming to the GOP. Black men are coming to the GOP. So it is becoming a midwit party in a kind of pincer like high-low coalition of the Democratic Party of educated whites um, and an underclass of blacks and others. But that kind of thing is, I, you know, I do think that's going to be more successful because I think actually coalitions are powerful when they actually are a bit kind of incoherent, you could say. Like the FDR coalition of Southern racists and urban eggheads, that's kind of a weird bag, but it worked. And just being the Midwestern party is just not going to cut it. Um, being a midway party is just not going to cut it. And it's like, I'm not saying that Democrats, I do think Democrats are better simply at governing and they're just more stable. But I agree that there's like a lot of toxic nonsense among Democrats. But like, where can any of these ideas be given a hearing? Is it going to be among like educated white people who are successful and coherent? Or is it going to be among people who listen to Alex Jones? Uh, Richard, if I could just chime in, I agree with what you're saying, but I just. All right, let's have a look at uh, what uh, Jason Kessler is saying here. So he quotes from a tweet by Evan McLaren. I read this piece around the time I published my statement disavowing white nationalism. So Evan McLaren used to run Richard Spencer's nonprofit. And uh, Jason Kessler says, Richard Spencer and former NPI National Policy Institute head Evan McLaren confirmed working with Southern Poverty Law Center by spokesperson Michael Edison Hayden. So... Michael Edison Hayden says, not talking about this publicly, but you don't know what's going on. So is there some kind of MSNBC special to come? What what uh, gorgeous droppings will fall from the beautiful mosaic of MSNBC? Looking forward to that. Back to this new Maggie Haberman book. Former employees record Donald Trump mocking gay men or men who are seen as weak with the words queer or faggot. That is so sad. If someone gay was of use to Trump or for a business purpose, Trump appeared open to the person, but that did not exempt them from private scorn. In front of one openly gay executive, Trump was nothing but pleasant and accepting, even taking him and his husband for Florida weekend getaways on his private jet and calling the executive's husband for advice on orthodontia for Trump's children. But come on, guys, we need... We need a, a culture of affirmation. We can't just tolerate uh, other cultures. We have to celebrate them. We have to celebrate diversity. We have to celebrate gay marriage. We have to celebrate gender transitions, right? We, we, need, we need to step up in, in our multicultural life. And uh, this was an important essay by Charles Taylor, Multiculturalism, Examining the Politics of Recognition. So... Politics of recognition, you know, demands that we recognize and celebrate what other cultures are doing, not just tolerate. But behind this gay executive's back, former Trump consultant says Trump belittled him as a queer and bragged that he paid the executive less than he would have otherwise. The homophobia that existed throughout the country for decades intensified during the AIDS virus. Why on earth would a virus that was primarily transmitted through unprotected anal sex between gay men intensify negative feelings about gays? I, I don't understand. So New York City was an epicenter of the disease. And uh, Trump apparently 
did not appreciate AIDS. He was blind to the beauties of AIDS. Right? He, he grew up in a city that had a carefree attitude towards sex and it quickly turned aid. It curtailed the greatest excesses of the club scene where Trump had once enjoyed being visible. Trump was terrified of AIDS. Guys, we can't be terrified of AIDS and monkeypox and of disease. Trump told one friend after another that he wore two condoms to protect himself. That's very bigoted. Please don't wear two condoms. He announced publicly he would require prospective dates to take an AIDS test. Don't be afraid of AIDS. AIDS is a gift. When life gives you AIDS, make Lyme AIDS. That's not my joke. So an AIDS test, it's one way to be careful. There are a lot of ways, he told an interviewer. I'm saying take all those ways and double them because you will need them. So bigoted against the prospect of getting AIDS. Among straight New Yorkers, fear of AIDS increased speculation about sexual orientation that was often homophobic. Trump w was experiencing homophobic anxiety and panic. He called reporters to inquire if people with whom he had just met might be gay. He worried simply because they had exchanged a handshake. In the world of New York's broader racial politics, Trump was extreme, but not so completely out of sync with other whites. Both the white ethnic working class of his native Queens and the elite of his adopted upper Middle East side were perhaps less overt about expressing their prejudices. So Ed Koch's relations with black leaders were famously contentious. Over time, the calcified racial politics of New York City began to loosen transformed and blessed by demographic and cultural change but trump's own views did not seem to transform as he built his manhattan real estate empire the fear city moniker right it was used to describe new york city there were nearly 2,000 murders in 1980 and 81. police donald trump said needed to be let loose unshackle them from the constant chain of police brutality which every petty criminal hurls immediately at an officer who's just risked his life to save another's we must cease our continuous pandering to the criminal population of this city he was just blind to the beautiful mosaic of criminal activity primary target of donald trump's ire was ed koch who had instructed citizens not to carry hate and rancor in their hearts i want to hate these muggers and murderers Donald Trump's ad continued, they should be forced to suffer, and when they kill, they should be executed for their crimes. They must serve as examples so that others will think long and hard before committing a crime or an act of violence. Yes, Mayor Ed Koch, I want to hate these murderers, and I always will. I'm not looking to psychoanalyze or understand them. I am looking to punish them. Well, sometimes having hate and resentment is adaptive, and sometimes it's maladaptive. If you love something, you're naturally going to hate anyone who threatens it. It was Anthony Fauci who pushed the idea of hetero-AIDS transmission. Thank you, Dr. Fauci. It was as clear a guiding ethos for his life as Trump seemed to have. Hate should be a civic good. Well, sometimes it is. In extreme situations, if you have hate for your enemy who threatens your people, you will have more power and more cohesion, more strength. You will probably be more adaptive to the situation. So Donald Trump said hate could be unifying, unifying force for the city. You better believe that I hate the people that took the New York City, uh, the New York Park, uh, Central Park jogger and raped her brutally. I want society to hate them. Seems fairly adaptive to me. The case increased Trump's visibility on as a commentator on topics well outside his area of business expertise. 
on CNN's Larry King Live, Donald Trump spoke about the weakness of policing tactics. Problem is, we don't have any protections for the policeman, Trump said. The problem with our society is that the victim has absolutely no rights and the criminal has unbelievable rights. Has to stop. None called for brutality in response to the Central Park jogger beating and rape quite as Donald Trump did. Same year as the Central Park assault, Donald Trump appeared on an NBC News special focused on race relations with other special guests, including such luminaries as the filmmaker Spike Lee, seems to have a great deal of antipathy to white people, poet Maya Angelou, and Martha Stewart. So Donald Trump said about affirmative action, a well-educated black has a tremendous advantage over a well-educated white in terms of the job market. Oh man, Trump's talking truth here. Sometimes a black may think that they don't really have the advantage, but in actuality, it's great. I'd love to be a well-educated black man because I really believe they have an actual advantage today, said Trump. So Donald Trump incorporated racial paranoia into his public persona and his views on civic life. I asked Trump about racial politics. He says they're more severe in New York City. I think it's more severe. It's a tougher game. Race is more severe in New York than it is anywhere else. This is the lens through which Trump viewed the entire country, if not the world. Tribal conflict was inevitable. Guess what? Tribal conflict is inevitable. One day in the 1990s, Alan Marcus brought up a news item he'd just seen about the changing demographics of the United States, projecting that non-whites would one day be the majority population, intentionally trying to get a rise out of Trump by raising a subject he knew would needle him. This won't happen, Donald Trump said. First, he insisted there would be a revolution. This isn't going to become South Africa. Such a shame that Donald Trump did not want the United States to become South Africa. When apartheid was ended in South Africa, the average life expectancy dropped a decade. AIDS became rampant. Uh, now the average life expectancy in South Africa is apparently the same as it was the end of apartheid, while other countries have improved in their average life expectancy over the past 30 years. So when Mike Tyson was released from prison in 1995 and moved into a new mansion, Donald Trump advised him how much money he could get from the community who wanted him to leave. Al Sharpton says if Donald Trump had been born black, he would have become Don King. Both of them, for both of them, everything was transactional. Chapter 8 of this new Maggie Haberman book, for two years, Donald Trump dated a beautiful model two decades his junior, Carrie Young, who was half black. She was the daughter of a black mother and a white father. Do you think she looks black? Trump asked friends. So Carrie Young has said little about the relationship, but she did describe having a boyfriend who exhibited cultural ignorance about black people and appeared to rely on stereotypes to process unfamiliar activities. Well, stereotypes are a very effective tool for processing unfamiliar activities and for making decisions in a complicated and sometimes dangerous world. So when they attended a tennis match featuring Venus and Serena Williams, Trump expressed surprise at the racially diverse crowd because he appeared to believe that black people were not interested in tennis. So sad that Trump said that. So this black girlfriend helped Trump ingratiate himself into a new world of black celebrities, such as the rap artist, artist, Sean Combs, and music producer Russell Simmons. Trump would point out these associations as examples of why he could not be racist because he knew black people and he engaged with them without taking issue. After meeting Young's parents, Trump told her that she had gotten her beauty from her black mother and her intelligence from her white father. 
Young told him that was not something to joke about. Then chapter 20. After Hurricane Maria struck Puerto Rico, Trump was reluctant to dispense aid. Due in part to his refusal to accept that the island was really part of the United States, he seemed to view Puerto Rico as a distressed property, referring to it as a place with absolutely no hope when an aide described its potential. Well, I think, once again, Donald Trump has pretty good instincts about Puerto Rico. To one point, uh, yes, mm -hmm. the Democratic, the, the, the managerial class, the Democratic, the Democratic component of the professional managerial class are more confident than their Republican counterparts. But these people are just not that impressive just in terms of being a professional managerial class. I mean, they're, I mean, they're problematic at best. But I do yeah. see what you're saying. It's sort of, look, I don't mean to sound like simplistic, but it is truly the lesser of two evils just in terms of the daily management of the country is what I think you're getting at, right? Yes, I mean, I think it's the lesser right. of two evils in the, in the terms of daily management. But I also think that like, in terms of the type of people who will give us a hearing, like, I don't like this assumption that, you know, gosh, if those types would stop listening to QAnon, they might be listening to us to get red pilled. I, it's just like, guys. No, there are, I'm saying most They're listening to QAnon. He doesn't actually. He doesn't actually openly endorse QAnon, uh, but he talks about stuff like that. Yes, I think there's a lot of people in his audience who make these are... distinctions without a difference. It's like you know, yes, yeah, fine, Nick Quintez does not wear a Q T-shirt, but like, come on. You know? okay. I, I think there Dylan. are people Dylan. in that audience that are normal, regular guys who would be open, who are looking for the truth and being totally misled. But there are probably a lot more of people like you're describing. I'll give you that. But it's just there are some that are just regular guys. Dylan. In my personal life, I've tried to red pill conservative normies many years ago, and I'll give you the short condensed Cliff Notes version. Basically, it was like, here's a litany list of you know things you know that inherently to be true. Yes, yes, yes. And then the next day or two days later, I'm getting an email about how Dems are the real racists. I mean, yeah. it's literally just, it's, it's, it's exhausting. And I have to agree with Richard. To a certain extent, it's ultimately futile. I mean. <laughs> okay, that's, that's, that's a different kind of a different point. What I'm saying is, well, first of all, something I wanted to add from our discussion before last week or whatever, I think it has a lot to do with proximity. Like, if you want to say every white person in the South that lives around, like, the most ratchet hood black communities, they might all, maybe, yeah, maybe they all instinctively, intuitively understand race. But what about white people in Maine, white people in Oregon, who the only black people that are there are, like, the self-selected, like, white higher IQ Southerners have lived they, around blacks their entire lives, and they forever. are what That's they what are. Saying. Yeah, I know they're 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 saying they under even the even the but they like, understand race. Who cares? But you're saying all liberals understand race. I grew up in Maine with around all white liberals. They do not like. We've got to understand this. They've been well, told a narrative I, that it's all I, environment. I'll, I'll grant you some of that, but like what I mean is that the liberals, like for better and for worse, and mostly for worse, the liberals are engaged in a racial politics that is yes, largely anti-white as well, but. The notion that they're like unaware of what they're doing, if you really, really press them, I do not think that they ultimately. I want to go, what was it, uh, Rubio, the, the senator for, from Florida in that debate where Chris Christie tore him apart and, and Rubio kept repeating the soundbite. Many people think Barack Obama doesn't know what he's doing, but he knows exactly what he's doing. <laughs> All right. That sounds pretty similar to what uh, Richard Spencer says. Deny heritable cognitive differences. I think they think oh, yes, that we can kind they of... Absolutely, they will, and they'll get very I don't want to get into this argument because no one can... I, okay, I, I have a question for Spencer, actually. Um, okay. Do you think that the liberals are doing this to save themselves from what they think is some kind of anti-white apocalypse, in a way? Yes. I think they are using diversity as a management strategy. Yes. But more than that, do you believe that they believe that it's not just a management strategy of managing a multiracial society? Do you believe they want to protect them from some kind of retribution. Okay, let's get uh, Chris Christie going up against uh, 
market review. Here. I will say if politics becomes and the presidency becomes about electing the people who have been in Congress or in the Senate the longest, we should all rally around Joe Biden. He's been around a thousand years. He's passed hundreds of bills. And I don't think any of us believe Joe Biden should be president of the United States. And let's dispel once and for all with this fiction that Barack Obama doesn't know what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. Barack Obama is undertaking a systematic effort to change this country, to make America more like the rest of the world. That's why he passed Obamacare and the stimulus and Dodd-Frank and a deal with Iran. It is a systematic effort to change America. When I'm president of the United States, we are going to re-embrace all the things that made America the greatest nation in the world, and we are going to leave our children what they deserve, the single greatest nation in the history of the world. Senator Rubio, thank you. I do want to ask Governor Christie, Governor Christie, you said, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, when it comes to electing a first-term senator. You heard Senator Rubio make the case that he does have the experience. Your response? Sure. Um, first, let's remember something. Every morning when a United States senator wakes up, they think about what kind of speech can I give or what kind of bill can I drop. Every morning when I wake up, I think about what kind of problem do I need to solve for the people who actually elected me. It's a different experience. It's a much different experience. And the fact is, Marco, you shouldn't compare yourself to Joe Biden. And you shouldn't say that that's what we're doing. Here's exactly what we're doing. You have not been involved in a consequential decision where you had to be held accountable. You just simply haven't. And the fact is... The fact is, when you talk about Hezbollah Sanctions Act that you list as one of your accomplishments and just did, you weren't even there to vote for it. That's not leadership. That's truancy. Um, the fact is that what we need to do... What we need to have in this country is not to make the same mistake we made eight years ago. Excuse me. If you'd like to respond to the economic... I think he directly right. mentioned me Please. and my record in there. So I think I get a chance to respond. You see, everybody, I want the people at home to think about this. That's what Washington, D.C. does. The drive-by shot at the beginning with incorrect and incomplete information, and then the memorized 25-second speech that is exactly what his advisors gave him. See, see Marco... Marco, the thing is this, when you're president of the United States, when you're a governor of a state, the, the memorized 30-second speech where you talk about how great America is at the end of it doesn't solve one problem for one person. They expect you to plow the snow. They expect you to get... Okay, that's a pretty good moment there from Chris Christie. All right, back here to Richard Spencer and company. Akin yes. to the Planet of the Apes movies. <laughs> well, okay, maybe not that bad, but yes, I get your point. No pun intended. Yes, yes none. I, I actually, I think there's a reason those films are kind of, in a way, the ultimate American film. But I, but don't you think yeah. that in a way makes them fundamentally maybe more demoralized than the quasi Alex Jones listener or the race realist, uh, barely listen to Jared Taylor type in a way? I, I think all of them are demoralized kind of in their own way. And the question for me is like, where can you find high quality people who can conceivably like bring civilization put civilization onto a new path and you know my experience with the right in general and trump people in particular like these guys are nuts they're useless <laughs> they are wacky maybe they have some like a common decency to them to be not just to be fair but, but to be you know to, they do have a common downhole decency to them but in terms of like what i want to do if there's if we're going to change the world we're going to have to reach elite people and maybe due to my like reputation i'll just never be able to do this and okay whatever but like nevertheless i don't think that's necessarily correct but nevertheless even if you assume that like we've got to try to reach higher quality people 
or we are going to be slamming up against a brick wall of appealing to these people on the basis of populism. You know, mm. speaking of that, speaking of that, Richard, I called into that show that I sent you the clip of before on SiriusXM, Ultra Family Politics, and you came up and we, uh, we were talking about you for a second. And actually, I called in to talk about Alex Jones and say that nobody on the far right takes him seriously. Um, I would love also for that. And um, I think you would love so, this show. So Richard talks about how and, he, well, but he I also care bring down in order to maintain that demographic. Okay, this is uh, Richard. He talks about he doesn't care about the Palestinians. So sad. How could anyone not care about the Palestinians? We want to maintain our ability to be a Jewish state, and thus we are going to have to. Okay. I don't remember all of it. And, you know, it's like that's the democratic balance. And they just, he seems to be avoiding the issue of Israel's identity as a Jewish state. And, you know, it's like that's the question of whether that can continue. I mean, he is part, and I actually read up on this a little while ago. I should go back to it, but I don't remember all of the names involved. I could go find these out. But, like, he is one of these types who sees, like, endless expansion of Israel as just an impossible dream and kind of undesirable. Like, we're going to have to engage in, like, we want to maintain our ability to be a Jewish state, and thus we are going to have to engage in some sort of occupation and kind of hunkering down in order to maintain that demographic balance. He's kind of a demogra demographic realist. They're probably going to annex the West Bank. That's what's going to happen. They're just going to annex it and they're going to have a bunch of stateless people or something along those lines, right? I mean... <clears throat> I think they want to continue the status quo indefinitely. Uh, I mean, so, but I mean, so yeah, so greater Israel is effectively like a LARP at this point. That's just not coming to fruition. Yeah, they're that's not to, the yeah. Bibi Not... Yeah, that's not the Bibi, Bibi, not you Bibi Netanyahu coalition. There's a coalition of like in between demographic realists. There are the like crazed Zionists who want greater Israel and so on. And, and then there's, the, you know, liberals and bunches like that who probably do believe in the Jewish state, but are like, uh, you know, are ready to lose that identity in some ways. And it's just a modern liberal democratic state. The only, the only Jew I know that really supports, like, sort of, I guess you could say some type of democratic system or making a non-Jewish state is maybe Gil Adsman, but that's about it. Uh, most of them in some capacity support having some type of Jewish state in control. And if there ever was a two-state solution, they're like a demilitarized Palestinian state. But then I'm like, you don't have a state then, right? So it's like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I oh, think I the whole two-state solution is nonsense. Oh, yeah, it's not workable at this point. I can't believe I didn't mention this. You guys, you guys have to see Chink Uger versus Dennis Prager when they talk about Israel. He was on their show like a couple weeks ago. Chink Uger goes fucking hard on grilling. On, on He starts calling Dennis Prager a monster and saying, why can't the Palestinians be free? You, I thought you supported freedom. No, he, he like rips into shreds. And then Dennis Prager is like totally stymied. He, it's like, where's your verbal IQ, dude? He has nothing to say. Has I would rather that? kill myself than watch that. Well, you yeah. agree with no, but he was. Yeah, totally I can't right stand Well, he was totally yeah. right on this issue. He was calling Dennis Prager out for being like a monster. He was like, "Doesn't that make you a monster?" And then he was like, "Why can't they be free?" And Dennis Prager said, "Because they will elect Hamas." And he said, "Oh, because they will elect someone that you don't like. That means they can't be free." Yeah, I mean, I ultimately don't care about the Palestinians. I mean, I, I would say this. Whoa, Richard Spencer doesn't care about the Palestinians. Uh, to not care about the Palestinians is, is not to care about life itself, guys. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think a one-state solution is the most reasonable option. And I do think it's going to have to be imposed by, from above. But the UN created Israel anyway in the first right. place. Israel's created as a mandate by the British authority after the First World War during this remarkable period of state building by Woodrow Wilson and company. And then the state was created. Under, you know, they can talk about time immemorial, but... At the end of the day, in Florida, like, if you don't agree with the Israel far right wing government of Israel, they will actually take contracts away from you. They will they will hurt your livelihood. That is the government regulating speech. I assume you've spoken out against that and you've been vituperative about it, right? To the extent that a person advocates BDS, which is the economic destruction of Israel, and should be allowed to advocate it, I think they should be allowed to advocate it.
<laughs> That's right. So okay. Florida and DeSantis is way, dead wrong, hearing, right? That is a violation you know, of free Netan speech and totally wrong. Netanyahu, Netanyahu is no longer in, in government. Why are you calling it far right? Yeah, I, you think that Naftali Bennett got any better or the uh, current person that's in church? They're all right-wingers. None of them want uh, Palestinians to be free. They think Palestinians aren't really fully human. And Wow, I think I agree with everything that Cenk and Dennis are saying so far. Can't be trusted to run their own government. They deny them wow. a state. And so, but but let's get back to America. January no, 6th. No, 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 you can't, you can't throw out bombshells and then move on. All right. You, you think that the Israeli government or the average Israeli who voted for this government thinks that Palestinians are not fully human? Absolutely. Then why don't you let... Yes. Every strongly identifying in-group thinks that out-groups are not fully human. Most Israelis wish the Palestinians would disappear. Right? Most Israelis won't chant death to the Arabs, but they wish that Palestinians would disappear because it'd be in their self-interest for that to happen. This is not unique to the Jews or to the Arab-Israeli conflict. This is a human tendency. If you're in an existential fight for survival, you wish that your enemy disappears. Let them go. Why can't they have their own state? Because it'll be run by Hamas. Are you foolish? Okay, so what? Uh, you, so what? The right-wing, um, violent government of Israel kills Palestinians all the time. Okay. So you're saying, wait, no, no, but okay, you're good, saying good. the Palestinians cannot govern you, themselves. Isn't that okay, what you're saying you as believe, a fact? You believe that there is moral equivalence between Israel and Hamas. That's all I needed to hear. You're literally you. saying they're not equal. You're saying the Palestinians they're and the Israelis are not equal. We have to violently oppress them the for the rest of their lives. How long is the occupation going to go? How Right, so if you talk in, in the moral terms that I, I stand for, yeah, I, I agree with Dennis Prager. But if you want to just talk in realist terms, then then Schenck is is making some good points. How long are you going to keep millions of Palestinians okay. as prisoners because you think they're less than human? Okay, Israel doesn't want to commit suicide because you sitting in America have it good, okay? Okay, if so Hamas you're saying won, never, right? Okay. You're, oh, you're going to imprison Palestinians no, no, for the no, rest of time, never. is that correct? When the, Palestinian, when the Palestinians disavow terror and stop trying to destroy Israel and don't announce that they want to destroy Israel, Dennis, there will be peace. Dennis, uh, they have done that in the past. You said not good enough. But the current state of affairs is the absurdity of the Israelis saying, we will not allow you to have a state because you theoretically say that we cannot have a state when we already have one. But no, you're literally no, no, preventing no. them from being, having a state. Us. So since you are okay. preventing them. The okay, so this is a great example of do you value process or ends, right? Process of equal treatment, like democracy for everyone. Would, would favor a Palestinian state. Doesn't that make you a monster who doesn't believe in freedom and that all of your empty talk about, oh, how much you love freedom is total garbage because you don't think it applies to Palestinians? You have a weird way of thinking. Great well, answer. Go ahead. Go ahead. Why do the Palestinians have the same freedom that every other human being okay. has? If you allow me to speak, I'll tell you why it's weird. You believe there is a moral equivalence between Israel and Hamas. That is morally sick. You are sick for not allowing Palestinians, millions of them, to be free. You don't believe in freedom, Dennis. You believe in oppression. Okay, good, uh, good discussion there. Enlightening. Right, you're probably wondering, uh, what would an Alexander Technique analysis of uh, Donald Trump reveal? Okay, so we're seeing some... All right.
the head tip back. So notice how the, the neck here is compressed. As he's moving forward, his head is tipped back, compressing the neck. And then when you compress the neck, there are more joints in the neck than anywhere else in the body. That sends waves of compression all through the body, down to the ankles. So ideally, you want a free neck, the head releasing forward and up away from your spine, leading your spine into length and width. So we're seeing some neck compression there. Hi, everybody. But uh, generally speaking, some pretty good use. And then look at Ivanka Trump. I wonder if she's had Alexander Technique lessons. Look at that long, free neck. All right, Th this guy here, all right, the, the, there's no compression in his neck. Uh, very little compression here. Some, some tightness in her neck, but she still has, has a fairly long neck. But uh, Ivanka Trump, very, looking very good there, very good posture. Okay, so Donald Trump's got some more length here on his neck. Uh, let's see, his left shoulder seems to be longer than his, his right shoulder. So his right shoulder, a little bit more compacted than his left shoulder, but he's got some length. He's not tipping back too much. Greg Norman, good use here. Long free neck, uh, width across his chest, width across Donald Trump's chest. Okay, so wide shoulders, uh, good length, say, from his hip to his shoulders. Uh, notice his neck is not compressed. So good use of himself. Okay, fairly good use of himself. All right, fairly wide, wide chest. Head's tipping back, compressing his neck. Okay, pretty good use. But notice how still the head tips back, compressing the neck, which is going to send compression all through his torso. All right, well, that's over with. And some uh, forward head posture with, with the head tipping back, compressing the neck. Okay, what about uh, Barack Obama, 2000? Illinois Senate candidate Barack Obama delivered the keynote address at the Democratic National Convention in Boston. So Obama moves very elegantly and easily. He's got good use to himself. He spoke about his personal background and about the Democratic Party. On behalf so notice, wide shoulders, like lots of freedom in, in his neck, good, good length and width. His head is balanced on top of his spine. Of the great state of Illinois. So he's not pulling in, compressing, pulling down on himself. He's got lots of length and width. He moves elegantly. Crossroads of a nation, an opportunity to so many who had come before. Across Europe, back home, my grandmother. So when he's gesturing, there's not unnecessary tension in his arm or in his chest or in his shoulders. So pretty good use there from Barack Obama. Now let's have a look at Joe Biden. Okay, nice width across his shoulders. His head is balanced on top of his spine. He's looking poised here. It saved lives, helped our economy recover from all the lost jobs. During so his head's remaining balanced on top of his, his spine. He's not uh, tipping forward or back or to one side. In the pandemic, 10 million jobs. 
So a lot of tension there in his forehead, around his eyes, and around his lips. Created a record for any administration at this point in the presidency. So yeah, he would benefit from, you know, releasing his forehead. So I think if you look at look at my forehead right now, there's there's not those compression tension patterns, lots of freedom around my eyes. Uh, sometimes I notice I speak with a lot of excess tension around my mouth, but at least the forehead is free, the eyes are free, and a little bit too much tension in my jaw and around my mouth and around my lips. But uh, Obama has great posture. Joe Biden seems to have great posture. Donald Trump has far better than average posture. Ronald Reagan had beautiful posture. 3.5% unemployment. 50-year low, 50-year low, 700,000, nearly 700,000 manufacturing jobs created with companies investing billions of dollars to build industries of the future here in America, proving, proving that made in America is no longer just a slogan. We're rebuilding our roads, our bridges, our ports, our airports. We're delivering clean water, high-speed internet to every American. And the price of gas at the pump is coming down. It's down $1.20 this summer, and just this week, last week, it's fallen another $0.10. Cents. Okay, so Joe Biden's got uh, good use of himself. He, he's free. He's got some upward direction in his torso. Let's have a look at uh, Ronald Reagan here. Chancellor Cole. Okay, notice the, the length of his, his cross his shoulders. So he's got a wide chest. He's, he's tall. His neck is not compressed. Governing Mayor Deepkin, ladies and gentlemen, 24 years ago, President John F. Kennedy visited Berlin. So, not excessive, see, no tension there in his forehead, as opposed to Biden. So, notice all Biden's tension here in his forehead around his eyes. When you, when you look at Reagan, no excessive tension in his forehead or around his eyes. And speaking to the people of this city, and the world at the City Hall. Well, since then, two other presidents have come, each in his turn to Berlin. <laughs> so let's have a look. Okay, so no neck. Cenk has no neck, so his head is, is tipping back on, on his spine. So he's got a lot of neck compression, and he's in kind of fight or flight, right? That's where if you're getting about to get into a fight, your, your head kind of retracts onto your spine. You make yourself smaller and tighter. So this is what inevitably happens when you get angry. But uh, I don't think Chank has much of a neck anyway. So he tends to walk around with a lot of unnecessary tension compression in, in his spine. Uh, Dennis Prager, all right, he's got a m much more length in his neck. His head's not tipping back, compressing his spine. All right, look at all the tension on Chank's face around the mouth, around the nose, around the eyes, the forehead. Like he's an angry type compressed man. Dennis, much more relaxed, not much tension in his face, in his forehead, around his eyes, around his mouth, even though it's a very intense debate. As long as it's on your side. Okay, so see, yeah, more length in Dennis Prager's neck, even though this guy in his 70s, I think Chank's probably around 50. Uh, not as much length for, for Chank. He's got more compression going on in his neck. Why can't they be free? So see, Prager is smiling. He's more relaxed. And and Shank is very much triggered into fight or flight. 
reflex. Why can't Palestinians be free? Why can't? So he's pulling down and compressing and tightening. Dennis still has some upward direction flowing through his torso. He's got more length. Because they will choose a government you don't agree with? So, yeah, Dennis Prager, much more relaxed, uh, much more pulled down and angry. Okay, let's get a little bit more here on Michael Flynn's Holy War. Using a part of the church as a tool. The vision of Christian nationalism is that we need to take the country back for Christian priorities, Christian values. We need to make America Christian again. Professor Samuel Perry has written extensively about the ideology known as Christian nationalism and the threat it poses to democracy. Why wouldn't anyone want to recreate the environment or create the environment that's best for their organism? Every organism does this. It's not just something that's unique to Christians or to nationalists or to Americans. Everybody tries to create an environment around them that's most conducive to their thriving. Right? Everyone, uh, from amoeba do this, mold does this, lions do it, birds do it, bees do it. Why can't we do it? Right? Every living organism wants to create an environment around it that is most conducive to its thriving. It's no surprising that Christians also want to do this. Why would they not? Why would Christians not want Christians like themselves to rule? My parents are evangelicals. I went to a flagship evangelical seminary training to be a minister. I would in many ways describe myself as an evangelical. I'm very much speaking and writing to my people. Mike Flynn has emerged as a martyr and a mascot for the far-right contingent of the Christian nationalist movement in the United States. Christian nationalism as, a, as an ideology sees threats both without and within. And the, the primary enemy for Christian nationalism is not different. All nationalisms see threats within and without. I mean, any sane people see threats within and without. Right? It's adaptive to be aware and on the lookout for threats to the state of order, threats to create disorder and violence and criminality, and threats of contagion. Religions, it is leftism. This idea about Christian nationalism. In his video response to us, Flynn took issue with the term Christian nationalism. They are projecting what they are on us. And so this idea of Christian nationals, it's like, we're a bunch of Nazis from world from the 1930s or something. That's no, that is so far from the truth. I want people to go back to two documents. One is the Bible and one is the Constitution. And you cannot dispute those. We need people all over the country to be willing to put on that full armor of God, to stand firm against the left scheme. So I'm not inherently, you know, for or against Christian nationalism. It all depends on how it's executed, how it's done, and the context in which it's done. In some cases, Christian nationalism, Jewish nationalism, uh, Latino nationalism, Mexican nationalism is adaptive. In other situations, other identities are, are more adaptive. So if Christian nationalism is primarily associated, you know, with low IQ loser types, then I don't think it's going to be terribly adaptive. But if it's primarily associated with above average IQ types and pro-social people who are cohesive and coherent, then I think it will be much more effective. You'll be met with flaming arrows, but the shield of faith will stop them. The Christian nationalist message Flynn pushed. 
So a question in the chat, am I in the army of God? Sometimes I do feel that way because sometimes that's an adaptive response. Uh, Dennis Prager talks about the power of speaking for God. Like Dennis Prager often feels like he is acting as God's spokesman on earth, that he is like in alignment with the master of the universe. And when you feel like you're aligned with, with God, you're doing God's will, that fills you with a lot of strength and energy. Now, it can also create a distorting effect where you, you know, become blind to, to many things. So as it simultaneously you know, raises your in-group identity and you're feeling a strength and power, it can also tip you over into delusion. So sometimes it's useful to feel like you're God's spokesman, that you are in God's army. Sometimes another perspective is more adaptive. This was resonating when I attended CPAC, the big meeting of the nation's conservatives. But Flynn didn't appear on the stage. Florida's kind of like the breeding center for patriotism right now. I found him across the street with his brother Joe, announcing the launch of a new initiative. Operation Eagle Wings is going to focus on nine key states. After the insurrection, Flynn and those around him immediately began talking about the future and how to influence elections down to the local level. To make sure that the errors and fraud that took place in 2020 do not happen again. Out of Flynn's 99 endorsements, we found that 80% have spread lies or sown doubt about the 2020 elections. About two dozen were at the Capitol for January 5th or 6th. At least 38 have used Christian nationalist rhetoric. After the press conference, Flynn finally agreed to sit down with me. I don't even know why I'm talking to you, honestly. And I hope this is recording. Is it recording? All right, let's uh, move towards the end of the show today. Birds do it, bees do it. Why can't we do it, guys? Let's fall in love. Let's allow the mighty eagle to soar, whether you're on the left or the right. You're a believer or not a believer. Sure, we can all get behind John Ashcroft. This eagle's place is in the sky She's still got a lot of flying to do You can see it in her eye Though she's cried a bit for what we put her through She soared above the lifted lamp Guard sweet freedom's door In the dews, the damps, the watchfires Of a nation torn by war Oh, she's far too young to die You can see it in her eye She's not yet begun to fly It's time to let the mighty eagle soar once more Let the eagle soar like she's never soared before. From rocky coast to golden shore, let the mighty eagle soar, soar with healing in her. the land beneath her sings only God no other kings let the mighty eagle soar 
This country's far too young to die. She's still got a lot of climbing to do. And we, we can make it if we try. Built by toils and struggles, God has led us through. We've fought for freedom, dear, both here and on the distant shore. Paid a price, sacrifice a price you can't ignore. Oh, we're far too young to die. We can make it if we try. We've not yet begun to fly. It's time to let the mighty eagle soar once more. Let the eagle soar like she's never soared before. From rocky coast to golden shore. God, no other kings. Let the mighty eagle soar. Let the eagle soar like she's never soared before. From rocky coast to golden shore. Let the mighty eagle soar. Only God, no other kings. Let the mighty eagle soar. Thank you and God bless you. Thank you. Goodbye. God bless. <laughs>